And here we go. First snap of the overtime. The Broncos have been in three overtime games this year. They won them all. Got him. Got him at the 40. It's Thomas at the 50. Stiffer got him three to the 30. To the 20. Thomas to the 10. Denver's going on the New England. They win it on the first play of overtime. I had to kind of feel bad for Miss Caster because we were watching. She finally she was doing a lot of stuff. I, I was watching the games all day on Sunday, and she finally sat down towards about the middle of the fourth quarter, and we're watching that game together, and it's getting ready to go to overtime. And it took me, I don't know, ten minutes to try to explain to her the rules of overtime. <laughs> you know, because it's not just you know the first team that scores wins. It's you got to go through. You know, well, if the team that gets the ball does this, that right. ends the game. They Basically, do this, it doesn't. Both teams have to have the opportunity to score a touchdown. Right, and uh, so she's like, "Okay, I get it, finally." And she got up and went to get a drink of water. And by the time she got back, the game, the game was, was over. over yeah, you know, so it was. Uh, it was I actually a- did the same thing. Uh, only I watched the whole game, and then got up for one second, come back, and Michelle's like. Denver's going to score like as he's running down the field. So it ended for me while I was in the kitchen. Yeah, I think that probably happened to a lot of people. It was one of those things that if you blink, you missed it. But welcome to Season 2, Episode 2 of the Sportscasters. It is January 10th, 2012. We are coming to you from still a very mild Buffalo, New York. Yeah, the, very strange. The realities of winter have yet to set in here, although... There is some reports that it may be on the horizon. Boo. Uh, we are back for episode two here today. As I said, we have three great guests today. We have Michael Holly, who's the author of a book called War Room and the host of the Afternoon Drive show on WEEI in Boston, which is called The Big Show. So Michael Holly will join us to talk about War Room, talk about the Patriots. We also have Chris Ballard, senior writer from Sports Illustrated, sportsillustrated.com. He's going to talk to us a little bit about some of the pieces that he's written. It's our first chance to talk to Mr. Ballard, so we're looking forward to that. And also Damon Hack, who is just the salt of the earth, one of the nicest guys we've encountered since we've been doing this, also from Sports Illustrated, sportsillustrated.com. He was actually in Denver for the game, so we're going to get a firsthand account of his experiences in Denver and he has a really stunning story uh, of about how he was able to speak to Tim Tebow. You'll never believe it. Uh, but we have some other stuff to do. If you missed it, last week was the season premiere of the Sportscaster Season 2. We had Tom Verducci, Lee Jenkins, Michael Fabiano, and Jeff Merrick. How did your teams do, Don, in your uh, fantasy playoff football edition? Oh, uh, we played both games. We ended up signing up for the NFL.com and, and the ESPN, ESPN version. Right. I did better on ESPN than I did in NFL, but I also played the strategy of not playing a full roster. Right, and yeah, after you told me about that, I kind of stole that strategy. Took I think Ray Rice in the NFL league. I don't know. I don't think I did especially good in either because I had the Steelers defense, which I think put up negative points in that I game. Did, yeah. I had the Steelers kicker, which I guess is okay. It's a kicker. 
But I mean, in the NFL one especially, you get that multiplier, and you want guys to win. And I had, I think, three Steelers in that. And uh, I was watching the games with my brother, and he pointed out, like, in the NFL one, the person that's going to win is probably going to be, unless, like, Green Bay wins the Super Bowl. But if the Saints win the Super Bowl, it's going to be somebody that just took all Saints, right? Right. You, you would think, because they'll have the big multiplier. And- well, I have all Saints except for I picked Ray Rice, and I picked Wes Welker. The rest of my team was Saints. Yeah. Uh, in the NFL.com one. Right. The reason I did pretty good in the ESPN one was because I had Breeze and Stafford. Oh, okay. I had I actually bought TJ Yates. The mistake there is uh, I wanted extra money to spend at other positions, but from the top to the bottom position, the dollars aren't that much different. So. And you know what I noticed is that the amount of money they gave was plenty enough to pretty much fill your team with stars. Right, right. I thought maybe the salary cap was a little high in that game. But again, episode two or season two, episode one with Verducci, Jenkins, Fabiano, and Merrick. You can still find it on our website, www.sports-casters.com. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash the sportscasters. Our Twitter is at sports underscore casters. Blog, the sportscasters.blogspot.com. And our email, the sportscasters at gmail.com. You can find all that on our website www.sports-casters.com. All right, let's get this thing started with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. (laughs) This is the funnest night ever. (laughs) Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. First piece of business this week in three things. A little bit of sad news. The Packers offensive coordinator, Joe Philbin, uh, recently his son went missing and he was found in a river uh, dead, unfortunately. Michael Philbin dies at 21 years old. Um, So very sad for the Packers and the Packer Nation and Mr. Philbin and his family. Uh not to dehumanize it, but people did ask about the football ramifications of this. And Mike McCarthy does call all the plays, but he said Joe will be missed it this week if, since he won't be around for the practices and if he's unable to go for the game. Uh, Mike was the second oldest of six children, and uh, very sad story. They don't they don't suspect foul play of any sort. Uh, so that means probably suicide? just an accident or oh, suicide accident. or he would. He was last seen, I think, late at night, so I don't know if he was drinking and fell or something. Uh, that stuff hasn't come out yet. They just don't expect it was foul play. You know, this is one of those stories that actually followed yesterday on NFL or uh, NBC Sports Talk. And Mike Florio was kind of following the story over the course of the day. And it started off, you know, Packers coach has someone, has a son who's missing. Then... Later it was, well, they found a body, but they haven't confirmed that it's the son of the coach. Then later they were able to confirm that. Just a really, really sad story. And Rob Domofsky, who was a guest of our show last year on our Super Bowl Spectacular, and his beat writer who covers the Packers, mentioned that he had never seen Coach McCarthy more down in a press conference since... He became the Packers coach in 2006. So this is a definitely a sad thing, but it might be the, one of those things that the, the team can rally around, and that's scary because I don't know that they needed much else. <laughs> no, probably you know, not. As, but, as good uh, as they've been, but it's very sad, and we wish, the, obviously, the family the best. 
Absolutely. All right, my first thing today, the BCS National Championship game last night was an absolute horror show. I, You know, there's so much about the BCS and... You know, last year our program debuted the day after the national championship, and we we spoke with Jeff Passan, who was the author of a book called Death to the BCS. So it's always been a theme of this show that we are not fans of of the BCS and the BCS system. And right. one of the big problems with it is the game is played so far after the season has ended for these teams, and that makes it really hard to get a feel for what's going to happen in the games. I mean. Just in the other BCS bowl games, you have a team like Clemson who ended up getting a 70 spot put on them by West Virginia. (laughs) You know, Clemson was a team that we talked about as a potential national championship team. We never mentioned that for West Virginia. So I would have never expected a team like them to put a 70 spot on Clemson. And the game last night was just so bad. I mean, LSU was horrible in virtually all phases of the game. Alabama, despite the fact that they dominated the game, couldn't even get it into the end zone until real late in the game when Trent Richardson finally busted one off. And, I I mean, their kicker still missed two field goals, made (laughs) made five. Missed extra point. Just the play was just awful. And it was was really bad. And I've just had it. And there was a report today that potentially – the next BCS contract couldn't include a playoff or a plus one at, at the very least, and boy, do they need it because th- that was just that was that was despicable last night. I and they and they're lucky it wasn't closer because if that game would have ended nine to nothing, six to nothing, they would have had a split champion. There's no doubt in my mind. Right, right. So, you know, yeah, we discussed it. What was it? The Stuart last? Mandel on the season the, finale. Right. All right, the NFL. Uh, some team seasons have already ended and already the coaching moves have started. Maybe the most interesting, and I don't know if this is a little gamesmanship. I mean, imagine it has to be a little more than that, but uh, the Patriots rehire Josh McDaniels to be their quarterback coach, who was, of course, the last two years the Broncos head coach before the week before their game with the Broncos. Uh, again, no conspiracy theory type things there. He was with the Patriots before that, but it is interesting that the week leading into the Broncos game, they they hire McDaniels again. And that's something we're going to have to talk about with Michael Holly later, just to see if there is more to that or not, you know. Right. Uh, also, Romeo Cornell is named the Chiefs head coach. He probably deserves it. Uh, they played well They for played him. well for him. They beat Green Bay and Denver, going 2-1 and one under him. Uh, Tampa Bay is looking at coaches, one of which maybe most notably is 68-year-old Marty Schottenheimer. Again, I, I bring some I bring up this point about Tampa Bay since it's really not news, it's just who they've talked to. Because it's strange how coaches like there's a carous the coaching carousel they right. call it. You just you get fired and you eventually latch on with a different team. Schottenheimer maybe was unfairly fired. He went fourteen and two the year yeah. he was fired. And Mike San Diego has been a disaster since then. Mike Sherman is a former Packers coach. Mike Sherman they're talking to. Yep. Childress is the questionable one for me because I am not a football expert by any means. He's I'm terrible. more of a fan, but he looked like garbage. Yeah, in oh, that would be a bad hire. So I don't understand how opinion. he gets calls about that. Wade Phillips and uh, Jerry Gray are the other possible candidates there. Here's the thing with that one, though. They need a disciplinarian. You know how sometimes there's this uh, 
he's a player's coach or he's not a player's coach. Right. I think Raheem Morris was so extremely a player's coach that now they need to go the other way to kind of clean up his mess. That's kind of what the Giants did when they went from Jim Fossil to uh, – Wow, I'm drawing a blank too. I I hate Tom. the giant Tom Coughlin. Tom Coughlin, yep. I I never liked Tom Coughlin because because he's a jerk. He's a jerk. But they he, needed that at the time. Yeah, you know. So I think that's what the Bucks are looking at. You know, they need a guy who Childress is a weird look at for that too. I think because Brett yeah. Favre ran that team when yeah, that, when Childress that was I, there. I, I'd be surprised if he got the job. And the last uh, piece of news that actually happened just this morning: the Raiders fired Hugh Jackson, which is I guess a little bit surprising because I was surprised they had a decent year. But I think they just got a new general manager in there. They did. So, so it's, a, it's just the example of them bonding his guy. He wants his own guy. Yep. So uh, something to keep an eye out. The NFL offseason moves are already happening, and the season's not even over yet. More offseason NFL talk. There's been some conflicting reports. One report says that Heinz Ward is going to retire. One report says he's going to play another season. Uh, one thing that we do know for sure, Derek Mason has retired. So my question for you, Don, is – one or both of these guys, future NFL Hall of Famers. Without knowing the numbers off the top of my head, I'd have to imagine that Heinz Ward is closer. Uh, that said, there's three guys that have been waiting to get in, in Tim Brown, Chris Carter, and Andre Reed, right. who I imagine all have better numbers than both of the guys, and I would imagine it's by a pretty decent margin. Uh, I would say pretty easily no to Mason. Yeah, I would think so too. I don't you have to kind of football all the hall of fames in sports have kind of gotten to the point where well if you let this guy in how can you not let this guy in so they have gotten watered down a little bit um that said like if i were to make a hall of fame you'd have to be at some point arguably the best at your position or top two or three and heinz ward's never been that so if he had my vote i don't think he gets in well let me counter that in one way sure he's never been the best statistical wide receiver right but for a long time he has been considered the best blocking wide receiver right and he's one of the nastiest does that does that entice you at all you know it would and we kind of talked about this off the air but if you're going to make that argument for him and maybe the argument's better for him but then why is steve tasker not in there uh his stuff everything he did is all intangible really because it's right I mean, special teams. Special teams doesn't really have a position per se. Right, you're not going to put up huge tackle numbers just covering kicks and stuff like that. Uh, but then we brought up the point of Devin Hester. Devin Hester is a, a no-brainer Hall of Famer, I would think. I mean, it if, feels that way. I mean, he certainly changed the game in a way. And again, he can't go in as a wide receiver. He's never been a very good one. No. Uh, so, if the intangible aspect of it. Is there? Then I suppose Ward is as good a candidate as anybody. But I think then you got to start considering other positions. Like, I mean, you're going to start putting fullbacks in that really didn't carry the ball at all. I, it's an interesting thought, and I know your argument before was just be the best at your position, and maybe Heinz Ward is the best blocking wide receiver ever, and so maybe he deserves to be in for that. But yeah, that's always been my test for if I feel someone's a Hall of Famer. Was there ever a point where I felt like he was the best at what he was doing in the league at the time? Right. Whether it be receiving, blocking, punting, passing, whatever. Was he ever the best? That's why I would probably vote for Ward because I think he spent a long time being the best at what he was. And what he was was a physical wide receiver who helped his team run the ball and also caught quite a few passes. 
and made plays in the Super Bowls that he played in. He, right, has, right. he has two Super Bowl rings as well. Yeah, it's an interesting case to be made for him. Uh, my third thing this week, a fan was fined $200. You probably heard this story for throwing a banana at Wayne Simmons. The fan's name is Christopher Morehouse. $200 fine for throwing a banana at a black hockey player, Wayne Simmons. He was charged with provincial trespassing, if I'm saying that right. I've never heard of it. And he has 90 days to pay his $200. Oh. So uh, he basically got a slap on the wrist. The police said there was not enough evidence to charge with a hate crime. This is where this gets almost laughable. Not that I want to see somebody that basically made a bad public racist joke. Right. I don't necessarily want to see this guy. I don't think it's a hate crime. Get hammered. Right. And it's not the equivalent of burning crosses or lynch mobs or anything. It's a really poor taste right. maneuver. But $200 is kind of light. And his lawyer, uh, Mr. Morehouse's lawyer, said that his client didn't know hurling bananas at black athletes could be seen as hateful. Really? <laughs> That's the argument he went with. And to his credit, it worked. Uh, unbelievable. You know, Wayne is a guy who was prominently featured on 24-7 this year. And really came off as very likable. Yeah. And there's actually a scene in one of the episodes where he was driving in his car and they were interviewing him. And he was talking about how he's never really had any kind of racist thing happen to him in the course of his hockey career. The guys have always been supportive. He's a pretty good young player. Yep. Uh, he's got a lot of talent. And, uh, you know, I, I heard this and I kind of cringed. You know, because you just think that the, right. the sport and the fans of the sport are a little bit better than that. So I'm disappointed it happened. I'm glad it happened in Canada and not here. Yeah, the only the only thing you can really look at that's a little bit sketchy about Wayne Simmons maybe is he supposedly called Sean a He's the one that got in trouble for calling right. Sean Avery a, a gay slur. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, but yeah, a nice guy. Just a, not like a ha-ha funny, but it, it's funny. The part that got to me was his lawyer suggesting that the guy – Basically didn't know what he was doing, throwing a banana at a black athlete. And I don't think he was doing it to stick up for Sean Avery either. No, no, absolutely not. All right, my last thing and the last thing for three things today, we've been talking about Hall of Fames. Barry Larkin was named the only player who earned enough votes to gain induction into the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame. There's also going to be Ron Santo who joined induction, who gained induction through a veterans-type committee. Right. Uh, he's a former Cubs announcer and player. Uh, you know, Barry Larkin, I don't know. Yeah, sure, <laughs> I guess. I mean, he won a World Series in 1990 with the Reds, beating the A's. One thing I'll say about this is we're getting to the point in our lives where the people who are being inducted into the Hall of Fames played their careers while we were sports fans. Yeah, it's scary. A and bit. Barry Larkin is, is someone who really crystallized that for me. Because I could think about his career as a whole through my own experiences as a fan. And I don't know if he passes the eye test for me. Right. He's always been a very good player. I don't know if he's a great player. Look at the Hall of Fame has Babe Ruth in it. It has Barry Larkin in it. <laughs> yeah. Every player is not going to be equal in their greatness. There's only one top. There's only going to be one greatest or second greatest player. Right, So, I mean, if the criteria is you have to be as good as Babe Ruth to be in the Hall of Fame, there's only going to be a few players in it. Right. So you can't just think of it about the ceiling. The basement is somewhere else. And 
I think he's close. My argument would be, and we brought this up with the football one, though, is like if I were making a Hall of Fame, you've got to at least be in the argument for the best at the time. Or in an era like now, we, we keep talking about how we have the golden age of quarterbacks. Maybe there's 10 Hall of Fame quarterbacks in the league right now, uh, but at least they're all really, really good. You know what I mean? Right. It's like you said, he, he, was a, he was a very good player, but it's not the Hall of Very Good Players. You know I mean? You'd have a lot of guys in there. One thing with the the way the Baseball Hall of Fame elects their people is basically there's a certain amount of people who vote, and you have to get above a percentage of the votes to get into the hall. Well, a lot of times, it's all about timing with the Baseball Hall of Fame. There's an interesting story this year. The second player on the list for most votes was Zach or <laughs> Zach. Jack Morris, right. not Zach Morris. Jack Morris, who has been trying for 11 years now to get into the Hall of Fame. He got the most votes he ever got this year, and a big reason is because Burt Bylevin was off the ballot. So people who before had been maybe comparing those two and voting for one of them now only had to choose between Morris or Morris, so to speak. So his total went up, and I saw Joe Poznanski say, who Joe Poznanski is actually a real expert in this, he thinks that it's a no-brainer that Morris will get in next year. So he's a guy who's going to have to wait 13 years to get in, and it's going to be a <laughs> lot based on yeah. who's on the ballot. Yep. And that's going to be like you mentioned with football. Well, a big part of Heinz Ward getting in is going to be, by the time he's eligible, have Brown or Carter or Reed made it, or are they past their chance of being eligible? I don't know what the rules are. Well, for the longest time, Swan and uh, Stallworth? Yep. John Stallworth had a lot of trouble getting into the Hall of Fame at their position, and I don't think anyone would argue Ward is. I mean, Dave Damashek would be a good guy to ask about this, and I think we might have actually in the past. Uh, but I mean, those guys had trouble making it in, and it's arguable if he's even as good as those guys. So, wide receiver is an interesting position, and, and wide receiver is going to get harder and harder too because stats are going to be so inflated. inflated. Yep. You know, so if you look at, I don't know, let's just say Marquise Colston, he's going to have unbelievable stats in comparison to other Hall of Famers. Yep. But he's pro- he's probably not a Hall of Fame type player. You know, so that's where the numbers are going to get tricky with this as the years goes on. But com- you know, congratulations to Barry Larkin. Yeah. I- I'm glad someone's getting in. What a <laughs> what a bummer it'd be if there were no Hall of Famers. Right. And speaking of the Baseball Hall of Fame, the next 3 years, Joe Posnanski wrote about this. There's going to be some big names getting in. Greg Maddox is close. Hmm. Uh there's a there's a bunch of really big names who are going to be uh, being inducted in the next couple of years, so it's going to be more exciting. How long do you have to be out to be inducted? I think it's five, five years. Okay, yeah, it's something like that. It's but, been uh, five years since Greg Maddox already, huh? Yeah, that goes quick, huh? Yeah, <laughs> it sure does. All right, that's it for three things. Here's where we go from here. We have Chris Ballard on the show. We're going to do a top ten list, our top ten predictions for the second half of the NHL season. We're going to interview Michael Holly. We're going to do a quick book club update. And we're going to do, oh, Damon Hacks on the show. We have pick four. So let's take a break and come back with Chris Ballard. Our next guest is from Berkeley, California, and is a graduate of Panoma College, where he played basketball and was on the track and field team. He went on to study journalism at Columbia University, where he earned a master's degree. He spent time interning for the Courier Post in Camden, New Jersey, and has written professionally for New York Times Magazine, 
USA Today, the Los Angeles Times, Men's Health, and other publications. In 1998, he and three other former college basketball players traveled over 31,000 miles to play basketball in 48 states and 166 different cities. Looking to share the experience, he authored a book called Hoops Nation that was named one of Booklist's top 10 sports books of the year and gained acclaim from publications like the Philadelphia Inquirer. Since, he has authored a number of other books, including The Butterfly Hunter and The Art of a Beautiful Game, a thinking fans tour of the NBA. In 2000, he joined Sports Illustrated, where today he is a senior writer. He has three times been honored for his work in the Best American Sports Writing Series, was nominated by SI for a National Magazine Award, and has occasionally written the magazine's prestigious back page column called Point After. A Warren Sportscasters, welcome to one of the most accomplished and distinguished sports writers to ever appear on the show, Chris Ballard. How are you doing today, Mr. Ballard? Doing great. Thanks for having me on. It's quite an intro. I'm, uh, I'm impressed we like with to, myself. We like to pump up our guests with our intros. You know, it's kind of a staple. And, you know, I was kind of disappointed because I thought, like, I would really impress you if I, you know, came out with the Panoma fight song, but I just couldn't find it. I tried. Well, you know, you know so uh, we had to settle for Columbia. They, uh, not a lot of, uh, not a lot of, uh, impressive, uh, fan support sometimes at Pomona. Uh, the, the Sage Hens are actually, uh, the desert chicken, and, uh, some of our home games in football, we only have about 50 or 75 fans. It's more about the quality of the experience there than the, uh, the fight song, anyway. Now, if you would have went to Cal Poly Pananoma, uh, I would have. They're the Broncos, I guess. I would have been able to find that, but you didn't go there, so that was useless. Yeah, yeah. I was doing some research for the interview, and we're big fans of the Best American Sports Ring series. We actually have a pretty good relationship with Glenn Stout, and we were able to have Jane Levy, who is the uh, the guest editor of the last book, the one that you've most recently your work has most recently appeared in. And I was going over the, I was reading the articles that you, you've had in, in the uh, book, and one of them was The Courage of Jill Costello. That's actually the one that's in the one that Jane Levy picked out. And I, I stumbled upon an incredible coincidence that we actually spent a lot of time talking about on the show last January. Uh, one, of the, mm-hmm. one of the ladies on the rowing team is a girl named Elise Edom. And you mm-hmm. mentioned uh, her brother real briefly in the article, and her brother is a guy named Emerson Edom, who for the last two seasons has played for the United States World Junior Hockey Team. And the reason he was such a story on this show wasn't necessarily because of his accomplishments on the rink, but because last year the World Junior Championships was in Buffalo, where we are, and Emerson had some not-so-kind things to say about Buffalo and actually became somewhat of a villain, um, I, despite the fact that he was on the, uh, the U.S. team. So I was really blown away by such an awkward coincidence that Emerson Edom would, would come up on this show again. But I was really, really, really swept away by the article in general. And I was just curious if you wanted to share with us kind of the background of how the story came about and maybe just more generally, just talk about what it means to be selected to be in an anthology like this, especially now for the third time. Well, uh, on the second part, you know, it's, I uh, I grew up reading those books, and so, you know, as a, a collegiate sports writer, and then starting out 
I always held that up as uh, the highest standard. So, you know, the first time, I've had two stories in it, and I've been in the Notables twice. So I haven't made a, a third of the story in it. That'd be wonderful. But uh, I really consider that sort of, for a magazine writer, that's that's what we aspire toward. And uh, I love those books. I love what Glenn does. I feel like if you were to take a, let's uh, say, a college journalism program, you say, okay, guys, in the sports class, just deconstruct the stories every year in that book. You get such a wide range. So that's wonderful. With the Costello story in particular, that was the rare occurrence where the story came to me. Someone, uh, her father, wrote in after her death, SI. Uh, I got the email. He wanted her to be a face in the crowd, I believe, originally. Uh, and I started looking into it. Ended up talking to him on the phone. It was just such a remarkable story. And the more you more you looked into it, the more I found out about her, the more impressive she was. And so I talked to my editors, and it was a little bit of a stretch because it's rowing, which is sport. We don't cover that often. Um, and it's the kind of thing where you're going back and reconstructing someone's life. I wouldn't be able to talk to her, so that was going to be um, a little bit tough. And you also had to find a way to tell this where you get a general readership to be interested, you know, uh, national readership, and you'd have to pull them through the story, which is ultimately be very sad. Uh, the big challenge, and in this case, what really helped was that she had kept this journal so I could use her own voice. Online journal she kept throughout her treatment. That allowed me to put her voice into it. And then her friends and family were very open about it, uh, remarkably eloquent, you know, heartfelt. And when you have those kind of sources to pull upon, you're able to create this narrative of her life. Without that, it would have been impossible because they're reconstructing this entire thing. Uh, wrote the story. It was obviously very hard for her parents to go through living this again, um, even just talking about it. And then the response was just amazing. I, you know, I think she had the kind of life where people were inspired by it. And, and afterwards, you know, we got just remarkable letters at SI. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really a fascinating story. And you mentioned that you know, rowing isn't something that you cover very often, and it, it brought me to something else. You know, when I when I initially reached out to you, it was because I had just read an article in the magazine a couple of weeks ago um, that I, I believe is called you know you called the kiss, and it was about the uh, the picture that appeared after the Vancouver riots after the Stanley Cup. And when you agreed to be on the show, I, I started to read more and more of your work, and it, it seems like more than maybe any of the other writers from Sports Illustrated that we've had on, and we've had on a ton. We've had, you know, Peter King, who he focuses on football. We've had, we actually are going to have Damon Hack on tonight, and he's football and golf. And, you know, it seems like the more and more I looked into your work, you seem to cover just such a wide variety of stories. You know, I read a really fascinating story about you and your brother playing basketball with your father, I mean, in 2007, you were in the Best American Sports Writing Series for writing an article um, oh, what the heck was the 2007 one about? Help me out. You remember. Yeah, it was, uh, it was right in the beginning, page 28. Yeah, small schools in uh, high schools. Right, the high school football story. Yeah. Right, the Friday yeah. Night Lights stuff. It just seems like you get to do so many different things at SI. Does that keep you on your toes? Is that a challenge? I mean, when you sit down and you get ready to prepare for a week's work, you know, and you, you draw upon all these different parts of the sports world. What do you look for in a story? You know, I started out and I covered NBA at first uh, for the first 
seven or eight years at SI, and I sort of started doing some of these longer pieces. Uh, I did some baseball for one one season. I did adventure sports. And what I eventually realized, and now what I look for, is these broader themes. So if you take a story and you, you know, let's say the Broncos win last weekend, uh, that doesn't need necessarily broader themes. It's great if it, it's great if it has it, but you're basically covering something on a deadline, and so the magazine's trying to put out a great story that tells, you know, the moment, you know, Tebow's past, something like that. I get a, I get much more time and leeway to work on the stories, which I'm very fortunate to have. What I can look for is something larger. So when I take, for example, a Vancouver story, and we talk about it, the editor and myself, okay, there's this moment where this couple is caught in this photo kissing. That's interesting. You know, what's happened to that couple? That's interesting. But what's the larger theme here? What's what does this tell us about human nature? What does this tell us about something beyond sports? So that's what I'm always looking for. In the case of that story, I realized that I don't think that couple alone were going to tell us that much. But if I brought in interweaving stories, five or six other people who were there on that night in different capacities, so I chose the police chief who was in charge of it and a guy who ended up getting into a fight and getting wrongly arrested, the hockey players, if you interweave these stories, maybe that will tell us something larger about sports and about for me, it's always sort of like, you know, the, the human condition. How can I pull something out of this that people will take away with them? Uh, and that's something that took me about, you know, seven or eight years to really figure out how to do. And I still, every time, you know, I don't know if I'm going to do it. I don't know if I'm going to do it right. You know, it's sort of it's always a crapshoot and you're hoping. When you sat down to write The Kiss, you know, you, it, it kind of starts with a photo and then it branches out from there. Did you ever expect it to be the story that it became, you know, like, there's like you mentioned. There's so many different angles. There's the Milan Lucic who grew up in Vancouver, and like you mentioned, the police aspect of it. Did you was this one of those things that just kind of snowballed, and you kept learning more and more and more about the night? I mean, I don't know how big of a hockey fan you were. What what did you, did you watch Game Seven? Did you follow the riot? I mean, how much did you learn after the fact? This was all after I started this story in maybe late October, uh, so it's real distance from the riot, which was in uh, June, you know, back in June, and and so in this case, I wasn't a big hockey fan, and I'm not, um, you know, so I grew up in the Bay Area, so, you know, the, the Sharks came midway through my high school years, uh, you just didn't have a big hockey background, uh, you know, I, I like the sport, but I don't really follow that much, especially for a sports writer, um, so that element didn't really interest me that much, uh, this was... This, sometimes you go out and report a story and you end up reporting tells you what to do. In this case, about halfway through my reporting, I got this idea about, okay, let's find all these viewpoints. And so I ended up talking to a bunch of people and winnowed that down. And then it was a very conscious decision. You know, as a journalism nerd, one of the books I studied in grad school was uh, Hiroshima, which was just an amazing New Yorker piece that became a book and, you know, obviously uh, considered one of the greatest works of nonfiction writing in the last century. Um, and so what I decided to do was follow that structure. And he had six characters and nine, I have seven, and take that as a guide and use that. Um, so then I got my six characters. I decided to decide, okay, do I amp it up here, take it down there, uh, and uh, end up writing it very long, and then from there cutting it down and then cutting it down again to make it into the magazine. So it's sort of a process. <laughs> Uh, I, you know, I wish I wish I wrote like some of my colleagues like Wertheim and Pazansky where I think it just flows out of them. But with me, it's always, you know, I'm 
we cut it down. Now, you well, first of all, so you're telling me you didn't have a Pat Falloon jersey when you were in high school? Sorry? I said, so you're telling me you didn't have a Pat Falloon jersey when you were walking around in high school? No, no, <laughs> no. Okay, uh, th- that was just a little aside because Pat Falloon is, I don't know, he's funny. Uh, I wanted to, you know, Lee Jenkins is is a good friend of ours, and he had written a piece. It was either the same issue that The Kiss was in or, or the one before or after, I can't recall, but it was about the last night in, ba- in, in, in the baseball season, and it was they were structured very similarly where you guys followed one story from so many different angles. And as I read both of those stories, I thought, you know, these, these are the kind of stories that could really someday balloon into a, a much larger uh, book kind of a thing. And I'm not saying that necessarily you'd want to explore the kiss and turn it into a book, but do you ever write an article and then later think, you know, this is something that could be more, that could be instead of, you know, five pages in a magazine, it could be 200 pages in a bound book. Yeah, and you're you're right. This was definitely one of those instances. I'm not sure uh, I would want to write the book, but I would certainly read a book about the riot. And probably you'd have to bring into a lot, of, you know, a lot of history of riots and political riots and sports riots. I could certainly see that happening. Uh, I actually have a book coming out this coming May that is uh, a magazine article from two years ago uh, that I wrote for SI about a, a small town baseball team in Illinois in the 70s. It's sort of a Hoosiers-esque story with this, you know, iconoclastic coach and he's sort of a hippie coach in a conservative Eisenhower-era town and become a small school in history of Illinois to make it to the state finals, et cetera. Uh, and that was such a good response and I really enjoyed writing it that after it ran, ended up turning that into a book. So yeah, there's a lot of times where you see it and you're like, partly you just can't fit it all into a magazine story. Sometimes the themes are so large that you really can broaden them out there. Uh, other times, the material is just so good. You know, when you get these really interesting characters, you, you, you're willing to follow them around. Because to write a book, you're going to spend, you know, a year, and a year and a half of your life really devoted to it. You really, you need to like spending time with that material. Yeah, you know, and that, that's something really interesting. And it's a theme that we've been, we've, we've come back to a few times on the show. You mentioned before guys like John Wertheim and Joe Poznanski. And Wertheim is someone I've asked this question to. And Poznanski is a guy who's been on the show. And you mentioned about how, you know, the material you really have to like. And it, it makes me think about Joe Poznanski and how he spent the last year of his life stationed in state college working on this Joe Paterno book. And sometimes I think of him and wonder how his overall passion for the project has changed since this since the scandal has come about. And I'm sure that's nothing you have to worry about in the book that you're authoring, but I wonder how you might handle something like that, a thesis-changing event that occurs when you're 75% done with the book. I mean, can you put yourself in Poznanski's shoes and kind of work out you know, how you would handle a situation like that? Man, that was, that was such a difficult situation that he was put into. I can't imagine it. You know, uh, I think if anyone can pull it off, it's going to be Joe. You know, he has that ability. I'm sure what he had in his notebook was great up to that point, and I'm sure he'll find a way to, to do it. That's, I mean, that's the, exactly the thing you don't want to happen when you're writing a book. You know, you're, you've spent all this time creating a narrative structure, and, you know, if you're, if you're reporting a book on something that's occurring, uh, it's much more likely to happen if you're following a you know, political campaign. You expect it. I, don't, I certainly don't think Joe expected it. Um, 
So, uh, you know, I imagine what you have to do is say, okay, well, what is, what is the advantage to this? What's the silver lining? There has to be one. Figure out what that is and say, how do I make this the new focus of my book? How do I use what I have to already to inform that? You're probably going to have to throw away a lot of it, which is always tough when you're a writer and you spend all this time gathering great stuff. You just have to say, okay, you know, that's going out the window. Uh, yeah, that's, you know, I, I'm very interested to see what he comes up with. I'm sure it'll be really good. You know, and I think we all are. And I think you mentioned, you know, trying to find the good in it. And I think maybe the number one thing is his book went from something that will maybe only interest Penn State fans or Penn State alumnus to something that's going to be interesting to everyone because now the story has morphed into, you know, this huge national thing that, you know, maybe tons of people will find interest in, you know, as opposed to just a few. Uh, Sports Illustrated is a magazine that I love. And what I love about it is so much of sports writing today is so short and mm-hmm. and quick. I know that Grantland is a website out there now that's kind of focusing a little bit on on longer form writing. And you're kind of a writer that does longer form pieces in Sports Illustrated. Is that a thing that you love about your job, the ability to not have to fall into the quick, low attention span world that we're in now in terms of reading and being able to have the freedom to write really long pieces like the Kiss was? Oh yeah. Uh, this is I sort of had this dream as a kid. First, I wanted to be Rick Riley, because when I grew up, he was writing those amazing long-form pieces, you know, about Bryant Gumbel, about the Citadel, uh, you know, Chris Mullen working through his alcoholism. I remember these stories, and that's what I wanted to be. And then, eventually, I wanted to be able to write a column like Rick, because his, his early years writing that column were tremendous as well. And then getting to SI, I did the back page for a bit, and I realized that, A, I wasn't that good at writing the back page, and B... It was really, really hard to do. Uh, I can't imagine how Rick did that every week. I was in every third week. But the long-form stuff, I feel it's something you can invest yourself in. You can you can really feel like you're, you know, it's weird to say sports writing is art, but you're really creating, hopefully, in your best story, something that borders on art, or at least you should aspire to that. Um, and people, they treasure it sometimes. If you do a good job, they'll remember it. You'll hear about it a couple of years later. Um, you know, uh, the Costello story is uh, an option for a movie. It has sort of a second life beyond it. You can impact people. You know, it's, it's a really cool thing, which you don't usually get from the daily writing or the weekly writing that sort of disappears after you write it. You know, as I was preparing for this, you know, one of the things that I did was just read as much Chris Ballard work as I, work as I could. And one that just really entertained the pants off of me was the story that you wrote about arcade basketball. And I had so much fun reading it. And, you know, I I was dying after I finished to, like, go to the nearest Chuck E. Cheese and, you know, nudge the four-year-old away and and play some hoops there. But um, I just wonder, like, when when you write a story that's as fun as that is, and you mentioned that, you know, you're a a really good uh, player yourself, how much fun was that particular story? What do you remember about it? And what was the kind of response you got from something that is as fun as that, as opposed to a story like the one that appeared in the Best American Sports Lighting that you mentioned was kind of sad and, you know, was, was uplifting for sure, but also had the sadness behind it. Yeah, that's probably the most fun I've ever had writing this story. <laughs> the Papa Shot thing, uh, that was just purely selfish reasons. I loved Papa Shot. My brother got me a Papa Shot machine. I became addicted to playing in my uh, in my uh, basement. And so, uh, 
you know, I, I pitched the SI editors on it. They were like a very tentative green light to let me do it, but it wasn't a lot of travel costs, just, you know, up and down the California coast here. Uh, and then, you know, after I wrote it, they're like, we're not sure this is a magazine kind of story. Um, and so we ran it on the web, which I actually thought was better because then we could include video of this guy, uh, Ricardo, who is just he's a machine. It's remarkable. Unbelievable I video. I, <laughs> yeah. And so we could include these videos, which is really cool, and embed them. And I could run it a longer length, uh, and the response was great. You know, you know, a lot of the hoop heads, the guys that uh, they're in the NBA that they love pop shot themselves, responded. You know, a lot of people, you know, told me they were the best, and so, you know, I would have loved, I would have loved to have the wherewithal to somehow set up a tournament with these guys, you know, the top ten, these legends of pop shot somewhere. Uh, I was sort of hoping, you know, Jimmy Kimmel had had some on his show. It'd be great if he got them all there at the same time something like that. I feel like that'd be great. But those are the stories that, you know, you just sort of, that's when your job actually is the greatest thing in the world. I can't complain. You know, for the research, I went around playing Papa Shot for like four days with a couple <laughs> friends, you know, just, you know, challenging people, winning stuffed animals at Dave and Buster's, just acting like a 12-year-old again. It was fantastic. You know, if you ever want to do something similar to that again, bubble hockey is in the north, oh. in the north here, uh, the northeast part of the country, there are tournaments. Actually, the bubble hockey finals is usually played at the Stanley Cup finals. Um, you know, wow. like there's huge tournaments for bubble hockey. And Fisher Price has a big, um, a big factory in East Aurora, New York, which is a little bit south of where I live here in Buffalo. And a friend of mine, they usually play it in teams. And a friend of mine who had won a bubble hockey against basement, we thought we were hot shots. So we went to this tournament. We thought we were going to win. We thought, you know, eventually we're going to be at the Stanley Cup Finals and playing on the ice, you know, and all this stuff. And these guys from Fisher Price, who apparently played on their lunch break every day, I think they beat us about 13 to nothing. And uh, <laughs> it was a really humbling experience. But bubble hockey is another one of those things that is similar to Papa Shot, where it has this, like, subculture of people who just obsess over playing what you think is a game that's just for kids at an arcade and people play by the quarter, but it's just another really fascinating thing. You know, I was wondering, you do a little bit of the Twitter and you do this long form stuff. And obviously Twitter is only 140 characters at a time. And we were lucky to have Tom Verducci on the show last week. And Tom has resisted Twitter. You're on and you use it a bit. What do you like? What do you dislike about Twitter? And what made you take the jump and join and figure I'm going to be a part of this culture? Yeah, I was definitely resistant as well, especially when you're not breaking news. Uh, from a output standpoint, it's harder to understand. But from an input standpoint, I think it's wonderful. You know, I get a lot of my sports news every day via Twitter. Uh, I especially like it when there's ongoing minute-by-minute uh, -minute action. So, for example, during that whole LeBron, where is he going to sign free agency and all the other people, that's where you're getting the best coverage. During the NBA lockout, the best coverage was coming on Twitter because you could just follow it. I like I like during games. If I'm at a game, I'll definitely follow the Twitter, uh, even as a fan. So I'll sit there and, you know, I'm watching it. I'm at a San Francisco Giants game. I'm a Giants fan. And I can get three beat writer feeds, and they'll be informing me about what's going on right there on the phone. I love that aspect of it. Uh, professionally, I think you sort of have to be on Twitter now as a sports writer. It's a way to get your stuff out there. Um, you know, if you write a story, it's not always going to be, kind of thing that uh, people are going to pick up on. But if you have a network of people who follow you on Twitter, they might read it, they might retweet it. Uh, it really is invaluable. And, you know, the same way you can 
support your colleagues and your peers and and uh, retweet them. I mean, it's become a, as much a networking thing, I think, with journalists uh, as a way to, you know, if you're John Heyman, you're breaking news. If you're Peter King, you know, that's different kind of uh, value to it, I think. But uh, for those of us who do long form, it's really a way to sort of keep in touch. The Sportscasters are here with Chris Ballard, who you can find on Twitter at SI underscore Chris Ballard. One more kind of new media question for you, and then one thing, and we'll get you out of here. But uh, I'm a big fan of reading the magazine on the iPad. Have you had a chance to do that? And what do you think it is about Sports Illustrated that just seems to translate so well to the iPad? Yeah, I think this is, for us, sort of the, you know, the end goal as we've been working through. I mean, the website provides your breaking news is the way to read it. I, you know, I agree. I think it's, it's perfect. And it's just a matter of getting, getting, getting people to, to know it's there and getting people to use it. But, uh, it allows you to have such a nice interface to have added stuff. You know, we do videos. I've done a couple of videos for that pad to go along with long form stories. People can read that story. Then they get a chance to see these people and see the story a second way. Work time does that as well. Um, you know, I'm very hopeful about that. I think for long form, obviously the printed magazine is a, a day coming sooner rather than later probably when you know, people aren't going to want to subscribe, when people aren't going to want to run the printing presses. But you're always going to have that kind of interface, and iPad is perfect for it. I love it. I love reading the magazine that way. I think the illustrated part of Sports Illustrated really comes to life on there. I like the way that you can include more uh, pictures and things like that, but... Last thing before we get you out of here, you're a big basketball fan, and there's been one thing about the new basketball season that we've talked to Lee Jenkins and a couple other people about, and we've been kicking around, and I'm curious to get your opinion. It's a shorter season this year. They're going to play 66 games in just over like 120 days or something like that, and I, I want to ask you this. If this is the year that the Miami Heat win the championship, LeBron gets his ring, and let's say they never win another one, will there be an asterisk? besides LeBron, you know, next to LeBron's name because it was a shortened season? Or do you think that the championship this year has as much validity as a championship any other year? Yeah, I don't get any asterisks at all. Because the NBA regular season, for the most part, is too long and uh, not meaningless. But, the, you know, I mean, come on. There's, there's going to be six teams that have a chance in a given year of actually winning the title if that uh, the playoffs are what matters. So if they shorten the playoffs, you could make that argument. The playoffs are the same. Uh, it's not like a top team isn't going to make the playoffs. They might not be quite as well prepared. There could be more injuries. Those should affect every team equally. Uh, so, you know, if you go back to, to 98, I don't think it's going to affect that. You know, I think the only thing it's going to affect is, is you say, okay, what's the validity of all-star picks, validity of uh, MVP? If some of those honors, based on a shortened season, I could see that, especially all-star because it'll be – such a truncated first half. Um, but as far as the championship going, yeah, I, don't, I don't think so. All right. The sportscaster is lucky enough to spend some time with Chris Ballard of Sports Illustrated, who, again, you can find on Twitter at SI underscore Chris Ballard. You mentioned your book's coming out um, in the spring. Anything else we can look forward to? What, do you, what are you hoping to accomplish as a sports writer in 2012? Uh, well, I've got a story coming out, I think, in about two or three weeks that I, I've got high hopes for that uh, really, really, uh, you know, a bit like Costello in some ways about a, a wrestling coach. So hopefully that one will be good for readers. And, uh, you know, otherwise just keep, uh, keep trying to write good stories. Thank you very much for your time. We really appreciate it and hope you had a good time with it. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me on. Okay. Thank you. We'll talk to you soon.
Special thanks to Chris Ballard for making his first appearance on the Sportscasters. You know, we're going to get to a point, Don, where we're not going to be able to say that someone from Sports Illustrated is making their first appearance on the podcast. Yeah, they've always been good to us. Yeah, we're getting we're getting around there, so to speak. If we could equate interviewing Sports Illustrated writers to having sex, we'd be, <laughs> we'd be whores. For yeah. Sports Illustrated? Yeah, we'd be big time whores. We, we sure would. We've slept with quite a few of them. They should use that on a book, like their next book jacket. <laughs> yeah. If they need a, yeah. a good plug for the, them. The sportscasters whores sleep with for sports whores Illustrated. for Sports Illustrated. All right. That music means this is actually the first time we're going to do this segment the way we kind of envisioned it when we started. For the last few weeks, we've been doing our top 10 lists. A we've been sharing a list. Yep. And that was just because we were still doing Five on Fantasy. Right. Well, our idea was that this, that this segment would fill in for Five on Fantasy. And that this is the first week that we're doing it that way. So Don and I have both prepared a list. It, it, we haven't shared them with each other. So it'll be interest, interesting to see. And our list this week is perfect for this. Ten predictions for the second half of the season. It'll be interesting to see how much similarity we have, how much potentially predicting the same thing in the opposite direction. Right. So let's do it here. What we'll do, we'll go from 10 to 1 or 1 to 10. Really, Mine really aren't any This order. is another list that the order doesn't matter. Right. So basically, we'll just go back and forth until we name our 10 predictions for the second half of the NHL season. All right, I'm going to kind of bookend mine with Sabres predictions, little homer predictions. So my first prediction is going to be that Thomas Vanek hits for 40 goals for the third time in his career. Okay, my first one is somewhat Sabres-related as well. I said that the Kings and the Sabres were both trendy early-season teams that were thought to be potential Stanley Cup finalists. Neither of them right now, after the first half of the season, are in playoff positions. Both of them, if the season ended today, would be outside of the top eight. I'm going to say that will change and that the Sabres and the Kings will make the Eastern and Western Conference playoffs. All right, uh, and a similar prediction, I'm going to say that both... 10th place teams will make the playoffs. So both teams that are now, I guess, technically two or three slots out, depending on how you look at it, will make the playoffs, and that is the Washington Capitals and the Colorado Avalanche. Uh, Capitals are just too talented, I think, to not make it, and Colorado started off pretty strong and has kind of petered back and forth, but they have a nice offense, and if they can keep it going and get good goaltending, I think they can make it in too. It'll be interesting to see if where they are around the deadline, because they're probably one of those teams that could go either way between buyer or seller. Right. You know what I mean? If they're close enough, they'll probably keep their players. If they're not, they might dump some off. So they're an interesting team to watch. My number two prediction is that the Penguins and injuries are just going to prove to be too much this year, and they won't make the playoffs. Hmm. They're holding on by a thread right now to the eighth spot in the Eastern Conference. Uh, Sidney Crosby, we don't know what his status is right now. uh, James Neal is going to miss weeks, and Jordan Stahl is also going to miss weeks. And Evgeny Malkin has stepped up his play and been really good, but it's just not going to be enough. And I think that this is finally the year that – and I love Bilesma. I think he's a great coach. Yeah, I think he's, he's done one really of the well best. in the past with this. But I just don't think – I think it's going to be too much this year. All right, my last prediction was that both 10th place teams will make the playoffs. My next prediction is that both 7th place teams will not those teams are Toronto and Nashville. If I had to rank those, I feel stronger about Toronto not making it. Um, 
I just think everything's gone right for them. They've gotten really good goaltending. They do score a lot They've of goals. They've gotten a ton of goals from Kessel. Uh, Conley and... Uh, Conley. Clark MacArthur. MacArthur both been good. Uh, just guys that... I don't know. I, I guess i got to see it for a longer period of time to believe it because I've seen him with the Sabres, and I've seen Kessel just not do this for a long period of time. They've dodged injuries to some extent more than other teams have. Loophole's been really good for them too, who was thought to be a bust. And Nashville was kind of more of a uh, – there's a log jam down there in the west, and it just kind of makes my prediction uh, symmetrical if I said both seventh-place teams. So – I don't know that Nashville has enough scoring, so we'll give that as the reason, and that's about it. The Florida Panthers are currently third in the Eastern Conference, but they only have 48 points. The reason they're third is because they're the leaders of the Southeast Division. I'm going to say that they're going to miss the playoffs. Wow. You mentioned the Capitals. I think the Capitals are going to be the team that wins that division eventually. They're only four points behind right now, and that's the difference between being third in the conference and being 10th. That's crazy. You no, know, because because of the way the playoff format is set up, I'm going to say the Capitals end up winning that division, and the Panthers end up out of the playoffs. They're another team that everything has gone right for. I know they spent a lot of money, and Dowtown's doing a good job there, but I still think that they're a year away, and I don't think that they hold on all year. My next prediction has to do with the team currently in first place in the league, and that's the New York Rangers, and that's got to be a shock to a lot of people. I'm going to say that they not only don't take first in the league, I'm going to say they don't win the division. Uh, that basically comes down to Flyers. The Flyers, I think, are a better overall team, and they're getting a ton of scoring from Gabrick, who's a great player when he's healthy. But to rely on a guy that fragile for a good chunk of your offense, I think is going to eventually catch up with them. I think their second in scoring is somebody like Ryan Callahan or somebody who's a nice player, but – not a guy you really want in your at the top of your team in scoring. So I like the Rangers as they're currently constructed. I guess I just question how long they can get this production out of Gabrick, mostly because of his health. This is my fourth prediction. I'm going to say that Steve Eiserman is going to make a trade for one of the Vancouver goalies in an attempt to help the Lightning make the playoffs. They need goaltending like maybe more than any team in the league. And Vancouver is getting to the point where they're having a true goalie controversy between Schneider Schneider, and Luongo. They're going to have to trade one of them. I'm not convinced that I know yet which one of the two will be. Uh, Schneider's probably the easier of the two to trade just because of the money that he makes. Yeah, I've never liked Luongo. But I think that Iserman is going to make that move eventually looking for a goalie. He does have some good scoring that he could move. So I I think that uh, the... The Iserman will pull the trigger and he'll get one of those Vancouver goalies in Tampa. All right, piggybacking on my last prediction, uh, even though the Rangers, I think, are going to fall back a little bit, I predict Lundqvist is going to win the Vesna. He's doing what he's doing is perhaps the most impressive of all the goalies around that same class. Uh, guys like Stahl have been good on that defense, but it's not a team known for being overly defensive, and they are playing better. But he's phenomenal and. Uh, I think he continues to be phenomenal. He's never been really a guy that drops off until the playoffs at times, but uh, I expect him to continue on. And I agree 100% with that. I think he's the class of goaltending in the league right now. 
you know, I mentioned about how Vancouver has a little bit of a goalie controversy. Probably Boston's going to have to make a decision between their two goaltenders soon, huh? This seems to happen every other year. Rask, Rask and Thomas are both at the top of the goals against average and save percentage in the yeah. league. Boston's tough. And it always has worked for them, but at some point... Why uh, have both? Right. You know? All right, my fifth prediction here is that Martin Brodeur will announce at some point that this will be his last season of his sure-to-be Hall of Fame career. Yeah, um, He slipped a little bit the last few years, and I think Brodeur is the kind of guy who maybe not himself, but the organization is going to want to make sure that, like Gretzky, he's going to get his chance to be acknowledged the last time he plays in certain arenas. You know, the last time he plays a game in Canada, the last time he plays a game you know, near his hometown, the last time he plays a game in New Jersey. So I expect this to be Brodeur's last year regardless. But I think that at some point before the season ends, we're going to know that and have a chance as fans to honor how great he has been since he came into the league in 1994. I hope he goes out that way because he's one of the classiest seeming guys in the league ever. And he likes fat women. <laughs> uh I'm going to jump ahead to my, my other Sabres point here and kind of talk about your trade deadline point. I think that my original statement here was going to be that Bobby Ryan or Ryan Getzlaff would be a Sabre by the trade deadline and that Roy or Stafford will not be. Um, I'm going to change that slightly because I realized today how much I hadn't looked at the standings. The Sabres right now I think are six points out of a playoff spot. And... They're based, I think they have the exact same record at this time that they did last year when they started exactly terrible the same. Yep. and went 18, on a great 18 run. 18 and whatever. Right, 18, 18, and 5. To expect them to do that again is a lot, and if they're going to wait till the trade deadline, it's going to bite them. So I don't like my prediction. I'm going to say – I'm going to make it a little more generic. I'm going to say the Sabres make a major, major move within the next two weeks, we'll say. Uh they that have, wouldn't shock me. They have to do something. So kind of before the All-Star break. They have to do it now. So, yeah, okay. I'll say before the All-Star break, the Sabres make some sort of major move, and we can be the judge of that, what's considered major. All right. My sixth prediction is that Claude Giroux will win his first Art Ross Trophy as the NHL scoring champion. This kid's unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, he's a great player, and he's a, he's a, he, keep, he was really likable in 24-7. I got to learn more about his character on and off the ice. He didn't miss as much time as we thought he might with the concussion when he accidentally ran into Wayne Simmons' knee. Uh, but I think that this kid's fantastic. He's got a ton of talent around him. He gets to play with really great finishers like Yarmer Yager and Danny Briere. Danny Briere, and it goes on. And I just think that he's going to establish himself as, as really the – the top scorer, one of the top scorers in the league, and he'll win the Art Ross Trophy this year. All right, my next three predictions have to do with uh, the trophies this year, and they're all kind of underdogs. Uh, I'm going to say Kevin Deneen and the Panthers, or Kevin Deneen of the Panthers, is going to win the Coach of the Year. I am probably in the same boat as you where I don't think they're going to hold on to that third spot all year. Someone like Washington is going to catch them. But I think if they make the playoffs at all, he deserves some serious consideration. Uh if they make the playoffs in the eighth spot, they might have a hard time tearing it away from someone like Tortorella. But to make the statement that Tortorella is going to win it right now would probably be betting on the front runner. So I'll say Kevin Zanin is going to win the Coach of the Year. All right. We mentioned the All-Star break. That's coming up in a couple weeks. The game's in Ottawa this year. I'm going to say that the East will beat the West in the All-Star game. Phil Kessel won't be the last pick in the fantasy <laughs> draft this season. And that Jason Spezza will be the MVP. We should do that game. for one of these. Is, uh, 
maybe not draft the whole team, but do the first and last draft picks or who we think will be them. Maybe when the rosters come out, we should just draft it. That'd be fun. Yeah. Um, my next prediction, Eric Carlson, uh, I'm going to say wins a Norris. He actually is kind of the front runner at this point. The Norris always comes up in conversation because it's supposedly the best defenseman, but it always goes to the best offensive defenseman. Carlson is currently a plus seven, and he, which isn't great for a defenseman. If you look at the plus minus leaders, actually, as an aside, like the top four guys are all Bruins. Uh, They're having a nasty season. Yeah. yeah, but Carlson's a plus seven, so he's not exactly irresponsible defensively, and that's pretty good numbers on a bad, well, a better than last year Ottawa team. But uh, and he's currently eight points ahead of the second best defenseman in Brian Campbell. So Carlson's just a he's a good good offensive player, and if he can keep that pace, he's almost on a point per game pace. So and some of the guys that are normally in that discussion aren't necessarily having the great years that we've been accustomed to them like having. Lidstrom. and Drew Doughty, I think, only Doughty. has three goals. And Mike Green I, has been hurt. I haven't heard much about Duncan Keith this year. Right. So yeah, it's it's, it's open this year for right, someone I mean, like that to win it. So I mean, if they don't want to give it to Carlson, they're actually going to have to give it to like a defensive defenseman this year, like a Chara or somebody. All right. I'm going to say this is my eighth prediction that the trade deadline will be another busy day in the National Hockey League and that the newest member of the 500 goal club, Jerome McGinley, will be traded by the Flames. Yeah, I agree. I thought I thought about that one too. Um, my next uh, prediction, rookie of the year, I'm going to say is Adam Henrique, who until today, I'm going to be honest, I don't didn't know much at all about. He was a third-round pick in 08. He's currently three points behind Ryan Nugent Hopkins who's great and probably the clear favorite to win that right now. But Henrik is playing with Kovalchuk, who's playing really well, and Patrick Eliash. So he's playing with great line mates, and he's going to put up a pile of points as long as he stays healthy and his line mates stay healthy. And like you said, if it is uh, Broder's last year, maybe New Jersey puts together a nice run for him. So I'm going to say Adam Henrik wins the Rookie of the Year. All right, number nine for me. I'm going to say the New York Rangers will win the Stanley Cup. I said this last week, by the way. I'm going to say they defeat the Vancouver Canucks in seven games. And this time that Canucks fans will successfully burn down Vancouver. <laughs> uh, and I'm going to say that Brad Richards will win his second Conn Smythe trophy. All right, my last prediction is that the CBA and realignment will be resolved by the end of the season. Uh, I base that only on the fact that we've been here before. The NHL has to have seen what happened to the NBA. Uh, I don't know what the NBA's numbers are. I know I predicted last week that I wouldn't watch many much of it, and I haven't seen a second of it yet. And I don't begrudgingly do that. I don't do it just to be too cool for the room or anything. I just it's not on my radar at all. And the second thing is NBC Sports is now around. They're not going to blow that uh, by going on strike and not having a season or anything like that. So they'll figure it out by the end of the season. I say. This is what I wrote down for my 10th one. The offseason will be a very nervous time for hockey fans. The league and the Players Association will struggle to agree to a new CBA, but a last-minute deal will help the league avoid its second lockout of the century. So we're kind of in the same yeah. mindset there. The NHL can't do to itself what it did, what, six years ago now. Absolutely not. It just They can't afford to do that again. Like you said with the NBC Sport Network, you know, with the momentum that they've going to build over the course of the year – being able to have commercials on during NHL ga- NFL games like they've had, I just can't see it happening. So I think eventually they'll get it sorted out. They're not going to risk another lockout. Do you know? I mean, maybe I should have I should have researched this, but do you know what the NHLPA's problem with the realignment is? I don't know that. I think one thing was travel. 
that was one thing that they said that the NHL wouldn't give them clear numbers on. Should it, terms be, it of, should be easier, though. Wasn't that part of the the realignment, that it would be more, like, less traveling from different time zones? and Maybe for a few teams, but right. then there was a couple other teams. I I don't know. I, I think, ultimately, it's really just a negotiation Posturing? Play. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't... I think if you really pinned them into a corner, they would probably admit that that was the start of the negotiations for the CBA. Right. You know, them kind of taking a stand there. And you know what? I, I'm kind of glad because I don't want to get back to the type of playoffs where you play the same team every year. Uh, yeah, I thought about that after we discussed That's the it. one thing I didn't like about that plan is like... The Sabres can't play the Flyers unless they make right. the conference finals. You know, right. and the, the better... I, I would I would sign up in a second for a 1 versus 16, 2 versus 15 type of thing. Right, you if you want to have a true home ice advantage. And when you get to see just different teams play different teams in the playoffs every year. You know, I know that NHL thinks their key to success is rivalries, but I don't agree with that as much. You know, it doesn't have to be an original six rivalry for it to be interesting. Right. It's okay for new rivalries to emerge. You know what I mean? Sometimes, like, the Sabres had a little period where they were big rivals with the Senators. Right. And that the games with the Senators meant everything. You know, then there's other times where their biggest rival is the Maple Leafs. You know, and maybe, you know, the Sabres would be a great team to rival the Penguins. But the point is, is that it's okay for new rivalries to emerge. You don't have to always lean on what has been a rivalry in the past. I think the best example of that maybe would be if you want to do a 1 versus 16 is a t- is uh, the Boston-Vancouver game we just watched. Right. What fan wouldn't sign up to watch that in a playoff series? And right now the only way that would – I mean, this is even under the current system, but right. the, way, the only way you see it now is if they meet in the cup. When I saw the penalty minutes in that Vancouver-Boston game, I was like, wow, those two teams have not forgotten <laughs> no. what happened in the Stanley it's Cup It's too finals. bad they only see each other once a year. All right, let's take a break. We're going to come back with Michael Holly, the author of War Room. All right, our next guest is from Akron, Ohio, and is a graduate of Point Park University. In 1993, while working for the Akron Beacon Journal, he was one of seven writers, several writers who collaborated on a piece on race relations in the Northeast Ohio. A series entitled A Question of Color won the 1994 Pulitzer Prize for Meritorious Public Service. He spent most of 1997 through 2005 working for the Boston Globe before leaving to briefly work for the Chicago Tribune. In 2005, he began doing sports radio in Boston for WEEI. He is the co-host of The Big Show with former Boston Celtics commentator Glenn Ordway. The Big Show airs Monday through Friday from 2 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. He has appeared on ESPN's Around the Horn and Fox Sports Net's IMAX programming. He has authored several books, including the New York Times bestseller Patriot Reign, Bill Belichick, The Coaches and Players Who Built the Champion. His most recent book, War Room, The Legacy of Bill Belichick and the Art of Building the Perfect Team, is available in bookstores everywhere. A Warren Sportscasters welcome to the very talented and patient Michael Holly, <laughs> who, Michael, you could really tell my listeners what a dope I am right now, if you'd like, or we can just keep things secret and kind of move on here. I'm going to tell you, that is one of the best introductions I've ever received. Too bad I read life. it like a clown. I read it like a first grader. Uh, you know, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. <laughs> I, I feel like uh, I feel like you've uh, you've read over that a few times. That's what it sounds like to me. But maybe you're just very prepared and you just nailed it. 
Yeah, maybe. Something like that. <laughs> You're too kind. Uh, Michael, thanks for joining us tonight. We're really excited to have you. You know, your publisher is actually one that we have a good relationship with. We've actually, since we started this podcast last year, we've been insane enough to kind of bring reading into it. And like Oprah, who's a good friend of ours as well, <laughs> uh, we have a book club. Uh, but instead of reading about you know, unhappy wives and things like that. We read about sports and uh, Martin brought this, the publisher brought this book to my attention, War Room, and I spent some time with it over Christmas reading it and really, really enjoyed it way more than I, I thought I would, to be honest. I mean, I've always kind of looked at Bill Belichick as kind of a curmudgeon and living here in Buffalo, although I'm not a big Bills fan, my, my co-host Don is. Uh, the Patriots have been a thorn in the side of the city in Buffalo, but I really enjoyed the book, and I really liked liked the, the angle you took. And, you know, as I read the book and did some research for this interview, I got to thinking about how you had already written a book about the Patriots, of course, Patriot Reign, and then you wrote this book, War Room, and I was just wondering, how did you get from finishing the first book? Was, it, was there some stuff on your notes that you feel like you didn't get uh, – fully go into that made War Room attraction, uh, attractive to you? Or was it the success of the Falcons? Or what was it that brought this book together and the idea of featuring the, f- the three guys and the way that they have built their teams that made it attractive to you? Well, uh, that's a good question. And first of all, I'm, I'm honored to be on a, a, on a podcast that the author of The Secret has also been on and all <laughs> the other Oprah favorites. Oh, yeah, we have so them all. I feel like, I feel like I'm in great company um, but no, with this book, it just really comes down to being a draft geek, uh, which I've been my entire life. Uh, I didn't know that when I was 10 or 11 years old. And I, and I grew up in, as, as you noted there in your intro, I, I grew up in Northeast Ohio. So at 10, 11 years old, I'm following some pretty bad um, professional sports teams in Cleveland, you know, paying attention to the Indians. And if they won 80 games, that was a miracle. And uh, paying attention to Ted Stepien's Cavaliers and, uh, and, you know, 15 wins, 23 wins. It was so bad for Ted Stepien that and the NBA made a rule, the Stepien rule, how you can't trade away all your first-round picks. They made up that rule because that's exactly what he did. So when I was a kid, I would always look at those Cleveland teams and say, well, what if they drafted this guy instead of that guy? Or what if they replaced this player with that player? How would that change their franchise? And it was really, it was really an early exercise in, in team building and figuring out what works and uh, how chemistry plays into professional sports. And so that's always been something I've paid attention to. And when I got the opportunity to, to do, a, do a book like this, which I've been thinking about for a long time, it was just a natural. And to answer your question on, on Patriot Reign, yeah, Patriot Reign 2004, when it came out, um, that was more focused on, originally the idea was supposed to be following a team after a championship season. It happened to be a 9-7 and seven season for the Patriots where they didn't make the playoffs. So I just extended the project, went into 2003, and then that opened up some other things. They won a championship that year. So that made that book. But in this case, I felt like I wanted to do more of a um, book that was centered on the draft, and team building. I touched on it in Patriot Reign, but this book is, is actually focused on it. And since you know, Thomas Dimitrov left the Patriots in 2008 and Scott Pioli 
left in 2009, and both of those guys are close to Bill Belichick. I just felt like it was a natural to have that trio drive the narrative. It's a long answer to your question, but that's the answer. You know, one thing I really liked about the book is you took the time to show a different side of Bill Belichick. You know, I'm, I'm the kind of person who, from afar, only knows what I know about Bill Belichick from what I see on TV. And he's a guy that probably can be easily misunderstood by the way that he comes across, probably in moments where none of us would want to be judged by the way we act in that certain situation. You know, he's not the he's not the easiest guy to talk to after a loss, as I'm sure you know a lot better than I do. And sometimes he comes off as being a bit curm- curmudgeon. But as we've seen in the piece on the NFL Network where they followed him for a season, and as I got to read in this book, he's got another side to him. And probably the story that most showed that side of him was when dealing with uh, the widow of Thomas Dimitrov se- uh, Sr., who is the father of one of the main characters in the book who passes away. And you note that Mr. Belichick spends a lot of time uh, consoling the widow and maintaining a relationship. Can you tell us a little bit more about that other side of Belichick, the, the part that we get don't get to see when he doesn't have the hoodie on, you know, and the kind of kinder side of him? Well, I, I'll tell you, you you've... Uh Use the word curmudgeon and uh, give yourself credit. You're absolutely right. He is a curmudgeon, and he does uh, come off as pretty dour and humorless during many of these press conferences. So you were, you were too kind. You said it <laughs> happens after losses. Well, it happens after victories, too, at times. You, know, you never know uh, what you're going to get from Bill Belichick. He can be extremely moody. I think Vince Wilfork was quoted in the book, and he said there are two sides to Belichick. There's... Uh, there's the a-hole, <laughs> and then there's the guy that, uh, and, and from Wilfork's perspective, he's saying, this is the guy I get to see where we don't talk about football, we talk about things uh, from everyday life, and he's a great listener, and he gives great advice. So I, I think part of it is uh, he is always in game-planning mode, always in protective uh, mode, espionage mode, when he is doing these uh, press conferences and just speaking publicly about the team because he just feels like he doesn't want to give give anybody any kind of competitive advantages. Is it a little over the top at times? Absolutely. I mean, there are times you ask just a basic question, and you'll get a non-answer, and you say, wow, why, why can't you answer that? But he has been doing it so long, that's that's all he knows from a, um, from a media perspective. But friends of his tell a completely different story. Uh, there's a story about uh, Thomas Dimitrov's widow, as you, as you pointed out. There's also the story of uh, Josh McDaniels getting fired in Denver. Uh, Bill Belichick called him, and instead of talking about all the things that went wrong in Denver, he said, you know what you need to do? You need to go to Ohio and visit your parents, spend some time with them, because that will make them feel better. You're upset now. They're probably more upset than you are, and it will help everybody if you go. And you just don't imagine Bill Belichick you know, thinking that way. And we just see this guy who is <clears throat> just standing there, this figure who uh, we, we picture him as this mad football scientist who's always around thinking about film and strategy when there's a completely different side of him. And and he he, he will show it to, to friends of his, but he doesn't show it very often when the cameras are on. 
you know, you've had a chance to write a couple books about the Patriots now. How, how have you, in your experience, have, have you been able to break down those walls and see a different side of Belichick, or do you feel oh, sure. like he's still... Sure, sure, yeah, yeah I, I have, and it, it's, uh, and I'm glad I've been able to do it. I, I got lucky when I was working for the Globe, uh, this is, must have been 2000, uh, his first year here in New England. He was 5-11 and 11 that year. Uh, there wasn't a great deal of interest in the team toward the end of the year, and I remember doing a story on watching film. And I was watching film with Belichick, and after that film session, I said to myself, man, there's a whole side of the NFL that I don't really think about and that's underreported in some senses. And I really want to do a book on the Monday through Saturday NFL, not just the Sunday, for three hours. And I said that to Belichick. I said, one day I'm going to do a book on you and, um, and this, this secret society, so to speak, and, and the National Football League. He said, sure, yeah, that sounds good. And everybody, yeah, oh, yeah, I'll write a book one day, yeah, yeah. And that becomes two years, five years, ten years, and you never write the book. Well, I went to him a couple of years later. I said, well, I want to write that book. And uh, he agreed to do it, and uh, the rest is history. Now, if I had... If I had done that story on watching film in 2001 and come to him in 2003, it, the book never would have happened because the Patriots were already the world champion Patriots at that point. But when I got to them, they were a team just trying to figure out how to make the playoffs. You know, uh, you said that a big part of your decision to write this book has been your your love for the draft. And I think that the NFL draft has taken on a life of its own and has become something that we all seem to be interested in, unlike the other sports. You you rarely hear much about the Major League Baseball draft or the NHL draft or, well, a little bit about the NBA draft, probably because of our love for the NCAA tournament and things like that kind of draws us to it. But um, it, the Patriots are a team that have had kind of some really great success and some really poor drafting. You know, like you look at Tom Brady in the sixth round and you mentioned, you know, in 2006 – the book does a good job talking about their draft where they pick Lawrence Maroney and Chet Jackson, who were big disappointments. I heard a story recently about how Bill Belichick was really hoping to draft Jimmy Graham. Ended up missing out on Jimmy Graham, but did okay in tight ends with Rob Gronkowski <laughs> and uh, Gonzalez. So, Hernandez. Oh, or Hernandez, I'm sorry. So overall, uh, what, what, what's your sense of the way the Patriots have done things with their their system and their way and, and doing it. Do you think it's like anyone else where, you know, draft success is so hit or miss? Do you think that they've got something or, you know, where, where do you, what's your final opinion on the Patriots as drafters? Yeah. I mean, I think they're good. I think they're good because they have a system that they believe in. And, and, and I'm not saying their system is better than anybody else's. And just to, just to be clear on this, I think anybody who knows what they want in the draft and they have a system to, to follow it up on, yeah, I think that, that team is good. Pittsburgh, for example, has a different draft philosophy than the Patriots. Uh, the, the Steelers, as I wrote in the book, the Steelers have made their first-round pick since every year since 1967. Wow. 1967. They have not been without a first-round pick since 1967. So Jeez. obviously their philosophy, whether it's a Hall of Famer they're drafting, um, a pro bowler who's not quite on the Hall of Fame level, hey, has some bust in there too, no matter what, we are going to build our team 
through the draft. We're not going to trade our first rounder. We're not going to uh, take any chances and do these kinds of things. And it works for them. I mean, there's a you picture in your head a Pittsburgh Steeler kind of player. Uh, you're thinking of somebody on defense. You're probably thinking of a linebacker or a safety like Palomalo or you know, those big corners like old school Mel Blunt. You're thinking, yeah, I, I know what a Pittsburgh Steeler player is. Uh, when San Francisco was good under Bill Walsh, you knew what a San Francisco 49er was in your head. And I think the Patriots have gotten to that point. You know what a Patriots kind of player is. Have they missed? Absolutely. They've missed uh, in the secondary. They've tried to bring in some corners to replace uh, some of the great players that they've lost, like Ty Law and Asante Samuel over the years. And it's been a struggle to find that cornerback or find a cornerback tandem that they can play together for five or six years. Um, they've missed some at safety, and they've, they've missed to the point where you've got guys who shouldn't be playing safety at that position, whether it's a wide receiver playing safety or whether it's a special teamer who shouldn't be starting on the field you know, 60 or 65% more than he should be. But I, I absolutely think uh, they've done a good job of drafting, and I think a lot of people – look at the draft as if it's, uh, you know, doing a good job means you have the answers to the test and you get, you know, 95%. Well, if you're doing well, you get 35 or 40%. And, and if you can, you can get some players who will impact your franchise for, for 8 to 10 years and you get those players every couple of years or every few years, you're doing well for yourself. But you look at the best in the business, whether it's, Ozzie Newsom, uh, whether it's Kevin Colbert in Pittsburgh, who I mentioned earlier, the recently recently retired Bill Polian, Bill Belichick, whoever you talk about, whoever you say, Ted Thompson in Green Bay, they've all had great days and great drafts, and all of them have swung for the fences and missed. So I mean, that's just part of the job. Yeah, you mentioned swinging for the fences, and one of the one story that you tell later in the book is about how. Uh, Dimitrov and the Falcons really went after Julius Jones uh, pretty hard in the draft and ended up picking him, I, I believe it was eighth in the draft. D- or uh, Julio Jones, I said Julius. Uh, that would have been, right. been a bad pick. You've got to beat yourself up with the mistakes. Hey, like I told you, mistakes <laughs> happen. See? <laughs> you just proved it. But, yeah, Julio Jones, and they, and they drafted him sixth. They moved up for him. Right. Way up from from twenty seven to six to go get him. What did you think of that? Now that we've had uh, been able to see a season and, and their season just ended last week, and you know the the Falcons went out with with much of a whimper, twenty four to two there. Uh, what do do you think that the the risk was worth it to move so far up to get Jones? Well, I wouldn't judge it on one year. Okay. Um, even though it was a, it was a good year for Julio Jones, he had some hamstring problems, so he. Missed a lot of practice time during the year and, and uh, missed a couple of games or missed a game at least um, during the season trying to nurse his hamstring. But it goes back to what I was saying before. Go into the draft knowing what you want. And some teams go into the draft knowing that they're not going to move out many picks. They're just going to uh, stick and pick, as they say in the NFL. And some teams, like the Falcons this year, they said, well, we feel like our roster is pretty strong. And we we want to get an impact player. We want to go into the top ten and get one of those impact guys. And they did it. So I, I think it's 
and it, and it was thoughtful. It was a, it was a, a lot of work went into that trade. It wasn't one of those things they decided, you know, a week before the draft. I mean, Thomas Dimitrov was thinking about both A.J. Green and Julio Jones as early as October. I remember being in his office, and he's gazing up at the board, early draft board in his office, and he's just trying to, trying to imagine what one of those receivers would do for his offense. And I think we are going to see in the next couple of years, if not next year, the impact, big-time impact, Julio Jones can have on the offense. But I don't think it was a mistake. It was a steep price to pay. Um, but if you, if you want the player and you think you can help your team and you think he's a good player, go get him. And it's, it's completely the uh, opposite philosophy of, of Bill Belichick. You know, Bill Belichick. He loves the trade has, picks. Yeah, well, he, he likes to trade, but he's not going up from 27 to 6. Right, he likes no. to go the other way. <laughs> he wouldn't do it. Now, he's moved up in draft before. He's moved up. I think the highest he's moved up is 11 spots. But 21 spots, that, that's a lot of capital. Yeah. Uh, that, that's, a, that's a very bold, expensive move. Um, and although Dimitrov is, is, a, is, a, is a limb on the Belichick tree, and he does things his own way. You know, you can't help as a human being to constantly be evaluating yourself. And as you said, probably later tonight, I'm going to kick myself for calling uh, Julio, <laughs> Julio Jones. Jones, Julius Jones, and botching the intro. But I wonder, after you finish a book like this and you get a chance to have your family and, and friends read it and you look back, you probably say, you know, a lot of things went really well and made the book good. And a couple things, you know, I wish I would have done a little differently. As, as, you, as you get a little farther away from the process of working on War Room, and you look at it, what do you think what made the book really good? And what do you wish you made a, maybe is there a few topics that you wish you would have made a little bit of a bigger part of the book or vice versa? Well, that's a good question. I think that's a, that's a part of every, every book project. You know, I think you need a lot of distance before you, you can figure out, um, you know, what you would do differently. I mean, I can tell you, I can't tell you about War Room yet because it's still, it's still so, new to me uh i usually need about six months six months to a year and then i and i and i'll go back and i'll look at it and then i'll i'll see what the strengths are and what the weaknesses are and then i'll say all right in the next book i'm going to do this i'll figure it out see for example patriot rain you know there are times i read that book and i cringe now who, should an author say that about his own book no but i'm going to i'm just telling you the truth here you know, you've got me. Uh, you've got me telling the truth tonight. But I think um, at, at times when I read it, I see the uh, mistakes of a of a first time author. I see where you know I could have gone into more detail in some areas, or you know I, sh- I man, I really should have talked to this person more. So yeah, there are times I, I look at it and I go, ah, oh, ah, oh, man. There's a mistake in Patriot Reign where I say, uh, little things to big things. There's a mistake in there where I say, Belichick plopped down on a, I'm supposed to say plopped down on a brown couch, but it was a typo. So it says, it says Belichick plopped down on a brown couch. Oh. Which is, uh, which is a completely different. Yeah. <laughs> and that would be very, very kind you know. either. Yeah. But, but yeah, you're right. Any, anybody who uh, is striving to be the best, and striving to be at at his or her best is always going to be 
critical and, and look to improve. So uh, that has happened with all of the books. I mean, it happened with um, the second book, uh, Never Give Up, with, with Teddy Bruschi. And the challenge there was to get a story in somebody else's voice, which I, which I had never done before for you know, 250 pages. You, you're essentially channeling somebody else. You, you, you have, you're telling their story the way they would tell their story. And and the third book, you know, Red Sox Rule, same thing. Where I look at I look back at that book and and um and and I I can see the the weaknesses and strengths. So yeah, it's all, it's all a process, and you know, the idea is just to make the next book better than the previous book. You know, it doesn't what? always work out that way, but that's definitely the goal. Yeah, you know, one thing that I, I would imagine has changed quite a bit since you wrote your first book, Patriot Reign, is the way that people read books. You know, now in this new century we read books on the kindle or on the nook or the ipad there's this whole new form of reading what do, what do you feel how do you feel as an author you know do you prefer people to read your book by holding the physical thing that you created or do you think that they're you know it's, it's cool that people read it on their ipads or you know hey, does listen, it make no difference to you listen i i love i love the fact that the people are, are reading it it doesn't matter whether you read it, uh, you're reading it on the beach in, 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 in traditional book form, whether it's a paperback or hardcover, or if you're on the beach uh, with your nook and, and you're scrolling through and, and uh, there's an electronic sound that, that, that simulates the, the turn of a page. doesn't matter. I really think the, uh, the content is what matters. So I, I remember when, when newspapers, and I was, uh, just a, a, a lifelong, been a lifelong fan of newspapers and with with newsprint on my hand, you know, smudging the walls, that kind of that kind of love of newspapers, stacks of newspapers in the apartment, that kind of love for newspapers. I remember when they first started to go digital, and people were saying, "I can't imagine, I can't imagine reading a newspaper on a computer. I can't imagine reading a newspaper on a smartphone." Well, that's exactly what I do now. Right. People are still getting the information. The, the form shouldn't even matter. I mean, that's superficial to me. The, the, the idea is, hey, if somebody comes to me and says, hey, I, I, I read in War Room that, that uh, Bill Belichick told Thomas Dimitrov not to make the Julio Jones trade, and he made it anyway, do I know how they read it? No. <laughs> they got the information. That's all that matters. The sportscasters are here talking with the author of War Room, Michael S. Holly, who you can follow on Twitter at Michael S. Holly. Uh, we just have a couple more minutes with you, and you know we got to we were lucky enough a few minutes ago to talk to Damon Hack from Sports Illustrated, who was at the Broncos game last week, and the Broncos are coming to your town this week to play the Patriots in a playoff game. And I was listening today on the way in to record the podcast, I was listening, thanks to the magic of smartphones, to WEI in Boston and listening to a little bit of your radio show and getting a feel for it. What is the general feeling in New England as we prepare for this playoff game? The Patriots haven't won a, a playoff game since 2007. They've had some tough losses at home. Ravens game sticks out. It started with that big Ray Rice touchdown run. Do our Patriots fans really confident this week that they should be able no, to run? No, no, nervous. No, 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 no. I, and not that the Patriots fans are are caught up in T-bone mania. I just think it's um, that we're spoiled here. I mean, when you win three championships in four years, and you and you see a team 
at one point win 21 consecutive games and always win at home. I mean, Tom Brady's winning percentage at home sounds like uh, a, a college coach's record. You know those college coaches used to schedule all those one double A teams? Yeah. Uh, and they beat them like 70 to 3. And, and, you know, they never lost at home because it was just designed that way. That's what Tom Brady's winning percentage has been at home in his career. It's outrageous. So fans came to expect that. And now that they have lost at home the last two years in the playoffs, there's a little nervousness about uh, the Patriots and have they lost their, their mystique, have they lost their touch. So whether, whether it was Cincinnati, I think there'd be nervousness if they had beaten Houston and come here. Uh, if Pittsburgh had beaten Denver, as banged up as, as Pittsburgh is, I think people would have been nervous about them. The people are nervous about the Broncos just because of history. But if you look at the matchup between the Broncos and the Patriots, I do think it would be a competitive game. I have much respect for Tebow and, uh, and, and the Broncos and how they've become a different team since he's taken over at quarterback. But I think the Patriots should win it, and they should win it by you know, a, a touchdown or, or a 10 points, somewhere in there, 7 to 10 points. You know, the position of tight end has changed quite a bit in the NFL, and I'm sure you've had a great time watching our boy, our Buffalo boy, uh, Rob Gronkowski, set the two records um, for a season for tight ends. What has it been about uh, the tight end and the way that the Patriots have used him that have let players like Gronkowski have so much success in that system? Well, I think it's also has a lot to do with him. He's a really difficult matchup. Yeah, I mean, he's playing with Tom Brady, that always helps, but you, know, you just look at his uh, natural abilities, his natural skills, you know, that size, six, 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 seven, with that strength and speed, and his hands, it's really tough to match up with him. So you put, the, you put Rob, Gronkowski, Rob Gronkowski in a vacuum and you say, okay, good player, tough matchup. But then you bring in Brady, and then you bring in Wes Welker, and then you bring in Aaron Hernandez on the other side, now you got an entirely different animal. I mean, we almost got to the point this year uh, for the first time in NFL history where you had two 1,000-yard receivers at the tight end position. I mean, that's, that's outrageous. I mean, we've seen two 1,000-yard running backs before. We've seen two 1,000-yard receivers before on the same team. But we haven't seen two 1,000-yard receivers at tight end. So uh, it, it's really an interesting approach, and I think it started off when I first saw it, I said, oh, it's an experiment where we, we, we're all used to hearing uh, stretch the field you know, vertically, whereas the Patriots now are stretching the field vertically in a different way, but it's more of a horizontal stretch than it is a vertical stretch, and it's working. They're, they've got tough matchups underneath across the field. All right, let's get you out of here on this. You've always been able to have – mediums that you've been able to express yourself in very long forms you've written newspaper columns you've been on television you know you've been writing books you have a four-hour radio show every day and now here you are on twitter and you only have 140 characters at a time what is what are, what has it been like for you to adjust to twitter what do you like about it what do you dislike about it oh what i dislike about it is it's a it's a really easy way to spread misinformation. I mean, all it takes is, you know, one guy to be wrong or, or, or an insider to just get something a little twisted, and then all hell breaks loose. I'll give you a couple examples. 
earlier. Well, I was going to say earlier this year. It was actually last year. Adrian Gonzalez, you know, the, the the talks were out there that he was in Boston and they were looking to sign him to a contract, uh, extend his contract, and uh, make him a, a lifelong Red Sox to to really complete this trade. And the idea the entire time was, you know, they were going to agree to a deal, but they were going to announce it when it was a little more team-friendly for luxury tax purposes. But somehow it got going on Twitter that the Red Sox had screwed this entire thing up and, (laughs) oh, look at these idiots and, oh, my God. And it just became this like Adrian Gonzalez started trending on Twitter and Red Sox stupidity. And it was just a matter of accounting. And, and, and so, so little things like that can just get out of control on Twitter, and it can become a mess. But what I do like about it is the opportunity to interact. I, more than tweeting, what I do is just respond to people. I, I, I enjoy doing that more than uh, tweeting, hey, I'm eating a sub right now, or, <laughs> oh, my God, I just heard Nirvana on the radio, which I did earlier tonight, and it was fantastic, let oh. me tell you. Um, uh, was but it I, lithium it, or it, you know, smells like Teen Spirit or Come As You Are? Or what? Uh, come As You Are. Oh. And then, um, oh, what was the other one? Back to Back, too. Heart Shaped oh, Box. So, it was so unexpected. So unexpected. All Apologies. Oh. Drain You. Oh, man. It's off the first one. It's off the first one. All right. So we had Smells it's, Like yeah, Teen yeah. Spirit. We had Lithium. So, okay, come, it doesn't smell like Teen Spirit. Come As You Are. Um, How much you are? There was okay. Keep going. Drain keep going. you, um, territorial nope. pissings. If we can say nope. that. Um, geez, what else was on? Never mind. With the baby and the little penis on the cover. Uh, 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 yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, you heard you, you heard <laughs> two anyway, songs from but, yeah. yeah but never, I, I never enjoy mind. the interaction right. um, with the fans. You know, sometimes they come up with some really, really funny stuff, some really mean stuff, and I, I, I just enjoy the. Uh, repartee enjoy the back and forth so that's my favorite part of it all right well michael holly very kind enough to join us today you can listen to him every day on weei from two to six you can also read his book war room which i mentioned and you can follow him on twitter at michaelsholly.com i want to thank you my game today was kind of like chuck knoblock you know i threw a couple into the seats and the first baseman <laughs> well, didn't have a chance to catch remember, him but you were very kind were- about it well, you know what? I, I do appreciate that, um, that you weren't quite the full Knobloch, because I don't know if you remember the one game, he threw it into the stands, and he hit Keith Olbermann's mom. Right, right. So, I, I, you may have been a little Knobloch today, but at least you didn't hurt anyone in my family. Right, I didn't hurt so, your mom. So you're still cool with me, and the fact you get bonus points, because off the top of your head, you were able to rattle off many of the songs, and I uh, thought of some more. What about In Bloom? Was it In Bloom? That's it. Okay. That was it. Yeah, yeah, that's it. We got it. All right, Michael Holly, thank you so much for being on the show. Good luck to the Patriots this weekend. I love the book. Thank you much. Thank you very much for doing it. We'll talk to you soon when uh, hey, maybe man, I'm a little bit more you know on my what? game. If you want to come back, if you want to come back, as you said, you had a Knobloch game. If right. You want to come back and make it a, let's see, well, let's see, okay, um, uh, who's, uh, you want to be- come back and make it a Cano game? Oh, yeah, Cano. You want to bring your Cano game to right. the table? Just give me a call. All right. And we'll and, do it again. And uh, On the next book, on, on book number five, whatever that is, <laughs> we'll do it again. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, Michael. We appreciate it. All right, man. All right. Thanks. Take care.
I know I said last week that we would probably wait until February to get going with the book club, but I ran into a book when I was searching around in the bookstore last weekend. I was kind of looking for some ideas, and I ran into a book that combines two of our favorite things on this podcast, hockey and Sports Illustrated. There you go. In November, Sports Illustrated released a book in paperback called Sports Illustrated Hockey Talk from Hattricks to Headshots and Everything in Between. Sells for fifteen forty seven on Amazon, or the Kindle version of it, it goes for eleven ninety nine. Basically, what it is is it's a compilation of articles about hockey that have appeared in Sports Illustrated, and there's an article that dates all the way back to the seventies and up to the present time, and it's really cool because. There's even an article, a, a hockey article in there by our good buddy John Wertheim. Hmm. And there's a bunch of articles by different hockey writers that Sports Illustrated employs. And I thought this would be the perfect book. It's not expensive. It's not hard to read. It's kind of a bathroom book almost. You know, it's just a bunch of different articles. Right. So it's really easy to be able to um, to read a little bit of it here and there. And since there's not a lot of time left in the month of January, I figured it'd be the perfect book to kind of just fill in. So I'm going to get an electronic version for us, Don, and we can kind of flip through it here over the course of the next couple of weeks. During the book club updates between now and the end of the month, we'll talk about articles that we read in it. The very first article is an article called Eight Seconds that was actually also in the 2011 version of the Best American Sports Writing Series. So let's give this book a try. Uh, again, it's available at Barnes and Noble. It's fifteen forty-seven for a brand new copy on Amazon, or eleven ninety-nine. It's also eleven ninety-nine on the Apple iBook Store, so you can go that route if you prefer. I'm going to do the Amazon route just so it's easy for Don and I. And um, we're gonna we're gonna check this out. I'm going to pull some strings over at Sports Illustrated, see if we can't get a copy of it to give away. And uh, we'll be, if all else fails, we can always talk to Wertheim at the end of the month because he has an article in it. But maybe we'll find someone new at Sports Illustrated to talk to. But again, it's called Sports Illustrated Hockey Talk from Hattricks to Headshots and everything in between. We're going to call that the Book Club Book of the Month for January. We're going to take a break and be right back with Damon Hack. We got a little bit of a problem we had to figure out a solution to. Did you notice that the episode from last week is all the way at the bottom of our feed? No. On iTunes? Yeah. Oh. Anywhere. Instead of being like at the top, it went to the bottom. I saw it on, uh, on the website. On the website, it's on the top. Okay. But, but like, iTunes like if you go to iTunes or Instacast or Downcast or anything like that, Stitcher, it's the last thing. I probably probably something with the naming we just have to because we switch from the name being season one one or whatever that's right to season two one so i don't know if it's something with the naming that's putting that at the bottom instead of the top huh i'm trying to think how it sorts that i think it sorts it by time i wonder if i accidentally put like 2011 
Sure did. <clears throat> yeah. Okay, so that'll be fixed when it just gets uploaded later. So that's an easy solution. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was sorted by time, so that shouldn't be an issue. Um. Cool thing about having Hack today, he was at the perfect. He was at the Denver game last week. Oh, was he? Yeah, so that's. So that it was. I can't believe that Steelers came back and then let that happen. How they're in a cup. Kyle Allen's done, right? Like, he looks. Doesn't their whole team look old? Yeah. It. I mean, it just seems like they looked old. I mean, I know they got a couple young receivers. What happened on that play? They were in cover zero. <laughs> there is no safeties deep. But that safety didn't blitz. Like, he showed blitz. Like, I think he was trying to maybe show blitz and then back out. But he backed out way too late. It'll be interesting to see what uh, it, we're going to talk to the perfect person. Because he was sitting in all 11 view, you know what I mean? So, it'll be interesting uh, to see what he has to say. But, I mean, to me, it looked like they were in cover zero. I, I mean, I don't know. That was really odd. Hello. Hey, Steven. <laughs> how you doing, buddy? Good. How are you? Very good. You know, I just talked to Chris Ballard for the first time. Nice guy. Oh, nice. Yeah, really yeah, nice good guy. Too. Yeah, really good. We had a lot of fun talking to him. He writes some really interesting stuff, you know? He does. Tremendous feature writer for us. Yeah. All right. You all set to go here? Absolutely. All right. Let's do this. Our next guest is from Los Angeles, California, and is a graduate of UCLA. He then went on to UC Berkeley, where he earned a master's degree in journalism. Professionally, he has covered the San Francisco 49ers for the Sacramento Bee and the New York Knicks for Newsday. He then moved on to cover golf in the NFL for the New York Times. Today, he is a senior writer for Sports Illustrated covering golf and the NFL. He is making his third appearance on the Sportscasters, a very warm welcome to the very talented and kind Damon Hack. How are you doing today, Damon? I'm good, Damon. How are you? We're doing really well. You know, I'm a Saints fan here in Buffalo, which I know is strange, but it's been that way since I was seven. So I'm on cloud nine. My partner here, though, <laughs> he's a Bills fan, so he just suffered through his 11th straight season of watching playoffs without his, his team. So it's a sad story for him. That is difficult. And when you think about the way the season started in Buffalo, we put them on the cover of SI regionally. You had uh, that incredible winning streak to start the year, and Fitzpatrick gets the big contract, and everyone's thinking it's going to be a great year in, in Buffalo. And, and the way they collapsed was was pretty sad, and unfortunately for our Bills fans, all too familiar. Yeah, you know, they beat the Patriots for the first time in 15 games. They're 5-2. and two. There was a nine-win AFC playoff team, so that means that essentially, potentially, depending on tiebreakers, they really only needed to win four of their last nine games, and they won one. Yeah, this is going to be a team I'm going to be interested to see what happens in the years uh, ahead, and obviously that division is really, really tough when you talk about the Patriots and, and the Jets, and the Dolphins seem to be rebuilding, but they at least played hard toward the end of the year, and 
I was really, really happy for for the Buffalo fans because the, the season and the league feels better when when Buffalo is is winning games. It's just such a a proud franchise with with many really great players that have come through those doors. And uh, I, I really thought that we were onto something special. In fact, we got our midseason report, and I picked the Bills to to, to win that. Uh, Sixth playoff spot. I had both. Uh, I had them ahead of the Jets. I thought it would come down to those two teams, and uh, and I was wrong on uh, both counts. Yeah, they both missed it. So, well, I don't know how it was decided that you would be the one to cover the Broncos and Steelers this weekend, but you certainly you wound up in the spot anyone would want to be this weekend because it was probably the best game. You got to see the debut of the new overtime, although very briefly. And it was a very interesting game on a lot of counts. Let's kind of start with the Steelers. Is it just me, or did they suddenly look kind of old on Sunday? Well, it's funny, Stephen. Let's let's even go back to the beginning of the year. My first regular season game this year was Pittsburgh at Baltimore, and I proclaimed the, the Steelers slow then. They looked old and slow. And even before the year, when I went to training camp, I said the one thing that bothers me about this team is that they're, they're very old. You know, veteran is a kind way to put it, and old is not so kind. But they were kind of trending and leaning toward old. And when I saw them get blown out against Baltimore, it kind of confirmed my fears. And you get to this wild card, you know, uh, range, and, and, you know, they needed guys to rest. They didn't have that buy. They didn't have that, you know, that AFC North Division crown that, that the Ravens won. So they had a lot of guys that were banged up and uh, were trying to play hobbled, you know, chiefly Ben Roethlisberger. They couldn't play Ryan Clark because of his sickle cell trait. Uh, Marquise Pouncey, the fine center, couldn't play. Trip Palomalu for a change was healthy, but, you know, they had a lot of guys, the linebackers, Woodley and Harrison, have been dinged up for most of the year. So they had some guys that had seen a lot in the playoffs and had done well, but they just, they just, you know, something that kind of told you that this is going to be a difficult game. And I picked them to win the game as most people did, but, uh, and then they fought back valiantly. There were, yeah, two touchdown deficit they made up in the second half, and it really made for a fantastic finish. But at the end of the day, when we look back at the 2011 Steelers, we'll probably write that they were just unable ultimately to overcome all the injuries that they uh, incurred before the season. Do you think the second that Ben Roethlisberger stepped on the field in San Francisco, about a month ago, that they kind of doomed themselves. Roethlisberger was okay in the game, but really for him to be really effective, he needs to be able to move around and you know, break contain in the pocket, and that's when he seems to make his best plays. Do you think he made a big mistake? And look, we're not doctors, and, and we, don't, we don't know his body, but it seemed like he was never the same, almost like rushing back to play in that game was maybe a big mistake. Yeah, that's a great, great point, Stephen. And I think that uh, I think Mike Tomlin should be commended in one way. He was asked about how he's going to handle Roethlisberger, and he says, "Listen, you know, I don't play those games. If my guys are able to play, they're going to go out there and play." And, and Roethlisberger's toughness is, is probably his greatest calling card, and he's able to withstand a lot of pain. But when you've got leg injuries, and you're a quarterback that really depends on his legs not only to throw, but to move around the pocket and extend plays, which is something Roethlisberger does so well. He was not 100% out there. I think that San Francisco game is the game we'll look back on as one that maybe Roethlisberger should have sat out. But, you know, i tell you what, the Baltimore Ravens swept the Pittsburgh Steelers, putting pressure on Pittsburgh to try to gain that, that, you know, that bye. And, and they couldn't get it done. So the fact that they got swept by Baltimore earlier in the season 
made them have to make a tough decision late on Ben Roethlisberger, and ultimately it caught up with them. There's been some conflicting reports, but I, I would say there's at least a 50-50 chance that we've seen the last of Heinz Ward. In your opinion, is he a Hall of Fame player? He is, in my opinion, Stephen, and I, I'll tell you why. I, about Speaking of Buffalo, it must have been about 10 years ago. I was up in Buffalo when Greg Williams was the head coach of the Bills, and um, I had just come back from Baltimore. I was, or, I'm sorry, I just come back from Pittsburgh. I was making my, my way through the, the training camp circuit, and I was talking to Greg Williams about Heinz uh, Ward, and, and uh, at the time he had a young receiver named Josh Reed, and, and, uh, and Greg said, you know what, Damon, I, I would love Josh Reed to just watch Heinz Ward film watch him work, watch him block, watch him run his routes. And, and uh, you know, about a year later, I was able to relay that story to Heinz Ward. And, and Heinz loved that story, to think that a coach on, a, on an opposing team um, thought enough of his game that he would want one of his young receivers to watch him play. And that story, to me, is a story I think about when people ask me, is Heinz Ward a Hall of Famer? I think he is, because he's just been uh, uh, one of the great blockers, maybe the greatest you know, wide receiving blocker we've ever seen. Incredibly tough, borderline nasty. Uh, wide receivers uh, respect him. You know, cornerbacks can't stand him because he's just such a physical wide receiver. And I think he's got the numbers. He's got the numbers. He's got the Super Bowl rings. He was arguably the best receiver on, on, on in a centerpiece of a, of, a, of a great offense in Pittsburgh for many, many years. He's not a flamboyant wide receiver when, you, when you're thinking like an acrobatic wide receiver. He's not like a Lynn Swan type. You know, he doesn't have the numbers of a, of a Jerry Rice necessarily or a Tim Brown, but I think in total, when you look at, you know, not only his catching, but also his ability to block and, and contribute to the running game in other areas of, of the offense, I think that's what will probably put Heinz Ward uh, eventually uh, into the Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio. You know, there's all kinds of situations where you have a really potentially talented player who just ends up in the wrong situation and they, they never become what they thought. Maybe, for example, David Carr being drafted into an expansion team and always being on his butt instead of being up for those years in his career. Maybe that hindered him. Then you think of a guy like Heinz Ward and you wonder if his skill sets and him playing his career in Pittsburgh was just the ultimate marriage. Him being such a blue-collar type with the toughness and the ability to block, as you mentioned, is he the kind of player who just ended up in the right city with the right philosophies and was just the perfect person to be a stealer? It's almost like he was born to be a stealer with the, the toughness and the edge and the way he represented the city. That's a great point. I never really thought about it that way. I, I do think that there are some players that are, are built for the cities that they play in and, and, and destined to be great, you know, Magic in L.A. or, or Larry Bird in Boston. And I do think Heinz Ward kind of fits the, you know, the ethos of, of that city, the toughness, the, the, the hard hat, the blue-collar aspect of the town. And, and I think that's why he'll go down as one of the popular um, Steelers of all time. Obviously, Jerome Bettis, who started his career with the then L.A. Rams and ended up in Pittsburgh. There's another player you think of as just a blue-collar, hard-hat worker. And, you know, another uh, old story, I'm kind of dating myself now as I keep reminiscing on these old trips that I've made, but a, a training camp years ago, it was probably around the same time I did the Greg Williams uh, interview about Hines. I went up to Pittsburgh in, in the Trobe in the summer, and it was a young Hines ward, a young Plaxico Burst and, and a young Antoine Randall L, and they were all going to be the kind of the centerpiece uh, of this offense for a long time. And Randall L, of course, uh, went on to, to the Washington Redskins and ended up going back 
to uh, to Pittsburgh later for a bit. You had Plaxico, who didn't stick around in Pittsburgh, became a Super Bowl hero in, in New York, and then obviously shot himself and missed a couple of years. And, and here you go, Heinz Ward, you know, kind of the, the old savvy veteran. You know, it was fun seeing him this past week in Pittsburgh as he was preparing for that game against the Broncos in Denver. And I, I'm interviewing him and not even thinking that they would lose to to Denver, not even thinking that this could possibly be the last time that I interview Heinz Ward, but just a, a tremendous player, a classy player, one that kind of inspired some hate against you know from his opponents. The he asked the Baltimore Ravens and some players on those teams in the AFC North, they may have a different opinion about Heinz Ward, but no one would, would question his toughness and his dedication to his craft. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about the Broncos. Now we're by no. It seems like you know. It seems like the country is is. The sports country is kind of getting to a point where half of the people are supporting Tim Tebow, half of the people are on the other side, the quote-unquote haters. I want to know what you saw being in the building, in the press box, looking down. What is your what do you what are your thoughts on Tim Tebow? Is he a quality NFL quarterback? Gosh, that's going to be the question we may be asking ourselves for a long time. If he's playing five, ten years from now, I guess it means that he is a, a quality quarterback. And I had my questions going in. I'd never seen him play in person. Obviously, I'd watched him on television and had seen the highlights. And I was very interested to kind of compare just by my eye, you know, him versus you know a, a Tom Brady who I've seen a million times or a Peyton Manning. And he's not your classic drop-back quarterback. It takes him, you know, a long time to wind up and throw. Often the ball comes out a little bit wobbly. doesn't have your classic spiral. Not a very big arm. Ball doesn't get there very quickly, but there's something about him that just inspires confidence in his teammates. And I, after the game, I was talking to one of his old high school coaches, Adam Hartley, down in in Florida. He was a running backs coach at Old Nice High School, where where Tim Tebow attended before going to the University of Florida. And he said there's just something about him and his ability to inspire the guys around him. You know, look at Demarius Thomas, who was taken fifty picks before Tebow in that 2010 draft, and was kind of viewed as a bust like Tebow and, and making big plays against the Steelers, obviously that 80-yard touchdown in overtime with the Steelers against Mike Taylor. I, I really think that Tim Tebow elevates those around him. It, it wasn't pretty, but the guy made some big throws uh, the, in the overtime, obviously, and the nice uh, touchdown to Eddie Royal. I mean, you, you see the aspects of a clutch athlete. You know, It doesn't matter always how it looks. But you can see just the vibe that they have and the confidence that they inspire in others. And I tell you what, it's hard to argue against the results. The stats aren't always there. It's not always going to be pretty. The ball isn't always going to be arriving in the most beautiful way. But I walked away from you know the old Mile High Stadium, Sport Authority Field at Mile High, feeling like I'd seen something very, very special. And if you knew that the Broncos were going to get the ball in overtime, you probably had a feeling it was going to go down to a Matt Prater field goal. Instead, Tim Tebow got it done in 11 seconds. You know, there's a lot of people out there who maybe are turned off by the way Tim Tebow is so out about his faith. And I've heard some people joking around, you know, about how he ended up throwing for 316 yards, you know, the Tebow 316 (laughs) thing. And... You know, it seemed like the Steelers, you hear a lot about eight-man box. It seems like they almost went to the extreme, a nine- or a ten-man box. You know, Tebow was in Buffalo a few weeks ago on Christmas Eve, and the Bills had no problem handling him. 
Do you think the Steelers maybe overthought their plan a little bit and dared Tebow a little bit too much and made it a little bit too easy for him to throw the ball down the field? I think you're onto something, Steve. And I think the fact that Tebow looked so lost his last three games, his numbers were getting worse and worse. He was turning the ball over, you know, not only fumbling the ball but throwing interceptions. And it looked like his accuracy and maybe even his confidence was starting to to wane a little bit. And I think Dick LeBeau and that uh, defensive coaching staff probably thought, listen, he's a guy who just doesn't have the confidence. We, if we're going to lose to Tim Tebow, we're going to lose to him in the air, not on the ground. And I don't think they had any thought that they would lose to Tim Tebow in the air. I mean, and again, you know, the, the passes sometimes are, are way off. You know, he had some passes in that first couple of drives where he was missing guys by, by you know, by a country mile. And, and you're thinking, how does it look so bad on one drive and so great on, on the next drive? And I think that the fact that the Steelers kicked field goals early, they had a chance to kind of get up maybe a 10 nothing lead or a 14 nothing lead, so they were up 6 nothing. Um, they kind of let Tebow hang around like a, like a boxer, you know, kind of just instead of uh, going in for the knockout early, they kind of, you know, were just kind of feeling their way through the game. And the next thing you know, you know, here comes Tim Tebow making big, big plays. But I do think that the Steelers kind of, you know, bet their house on, on, on letting Tebow try to beat him through the air. And they were going to put eight, nine, ten men in the box and not let him beat him on the ground. But also the, the Steelers were out Ryan Clark, their fine safety who has that sickle tr- cell trait. I think that's a, a loss that, that can't be overstated. Really one of the, the defensive leaders of that team and a great tackler as well. I'm not a coach, but from what I could tell on that last play, it looked like the Steelers were basically playing a cover zero and it looked like the safeties were really close to the line of scrimmage and really, once Thomas beat his the guy who was covering him, it was a clear path to the end zone. Obviously, he made a nice stiff arm in there. Uh, is that what you've seen? Talk about that winning play and what went wrong for the Steelers and what went right for the Broncos. Absolutely right. You know, the first play of that overtime, uh, I want to say Mike McCoy, the uh, offensive coordinator of the Denver Broncos, he had his play right away. He knew what he wanted to do. He, he saw that the Steelers were in cover zero, thought that they would be as well, with the safeties kind of cinching towards the line of scrimmage, cheating toward the line. Troy Palomalo and Ryan Mundy both cheating toward the line of scrimmage. And so there goes out Demarius Thomas split wide left. He sees one guy. And he, you know, he told us after the game, he says, I, I had one guy out there. The safeties were coming to the line of scrimmage cheating that way. So they're cheating already to begin with. Then you have a play action pass where Tebow's faking a handoff to McGahee, further drawing the defenders toward the line of scrimmage, including those safeties. So now Tears Isers or, or, or Thomas's eyes are as big as sausage because he knows the only guy he has to beat is Ike Taylor's that didn't get a great jump off the line of scrimmage and, and Thomas is able to beat him quickly inside on this kind of a deep crossing route. And, and Tebow throws a perfect pass, hits him at about the thirty nine yard line. So the pass probably goes about, you know, nineteen to somewhere probably more like twenty five yards because Tebow was, was was standing back from the line hits him in perfect stride, and there's nobody back there. You know, then it's a foot race. Then it's just kind of, you know, man against man. Taylor is not able to bring him down. Thomas has a, a perfect stiff arm and takes it 80 yards to the house. So you had kind of the perfect storm. You had the Steelers in, in kind of a cover zero formation. You had a great play-action fake from Tebow to, to, to Lewis McGahee, a perfectly thrown ball, uh, a great job of running after the catch by a second-year guy in Demarius Thomas who, who knew he had something to prove and told us after the game he wanted to be a big play receiver and in that play he absolutely was. 
Tell us about the crowd. What was the crowd like after the uh, touchdown? It was great. It was delirious. It was one of those moments where you love being a, a sports rider. You know, there's been a few in my career, you know, being at, uh, at a golf tournament perhaps, you know, and watching Tiger Woods, you know, sink the putt on the 18th green and, and seeing the crowd be electric or being at a Knicks playoff game as I was when I first moved to New York and watching them, you know, beat the, the Bulls or beat the Indiana Pacers or the Miami Heat in a big game. Those are the type of things you remember where everyone's kind of shouting and, and, and the stadium is, is shaking. And it was rocking, and it was funny because before the game, you saw some terrible towels in the crowd. There were, there were a lot of Steelers fans. Steelers fans, not only do they travel, but they live everywhere. So there was a, a fine contingent of Pittsburgh Steelers fans at the beginning of the game. Of course, at the end of the game, it was just a sea of orange and blue love for, for Tebow and his charge, charges. We know that the uh, that the fans are on Tim Tebow's side. There was billboards propping up around town earlier in the season. Being around the team, do you get the sense that the two Johns are – do you think Tebow's winning over John Fox and John Elway, or do you think ultimately <laughs> they secretly wouldn't mind him kind of laying an egg here and, and being able to move on and kind of pick their own guy? What What is your sense of that situation? Yeah, it's funny. A lot of us in uh, in the sports writing business, we we can't uh, help but look at the TV and laugh. You know, throughout the year, kind of watching John Elway's expression. You know, we've kind of become these uh, pop psychologists. You know, trying yeah. to figure out and read read his facial expressions on when Tebow's been pulling out these wins. And you know, Elway, of course, you want to talk about your your typical you know prototypical quarterback. You know, perfect arm. You know athletic, you know, throws it 80 yards from his knees, uh, just a prototypical quarterback who can, you know, throw a, throw a, you know, like a fastball, you know, 100 miles per hour, and a great uh, two-sport athlete, a stud, you know, the hero of Denver, the, the most famous Broncos uh, player of all time, watching this unorthodox, you know, lefty quarterback who's throwing, you know, knuckleballs that somehow seem to find their way in the fourth quarter. I don't know what they're going to do. Uh, how, how do you... How do you not uh, keep Tim Tebow around and, and, and make him your at least your number one starter going into next season? I have no complaints if the Broncos brass wants to bring in competition. We saw what happened in Indianapolis when you think you have a guy uh, that can do it all and, and you don't have that protection of a, of a number two or number three quarterback that you can believe in. Look what Houston did with, with T.J. Yates. You know, he's obviously playing well enough to keep the Houston Texans moving and grooving in the postseason. But I tell you what, Tim Tebow has opened my eyes, and, and I think that the, the two Johns, Elway and Fox, they did not draft uh, uh, Tim Tebow. I know they weren't enamored with him at the beginning of the year. They went to, to Tebow reluctantly when they were already 1-4 and four and pretty much looked like they'd be out of the postseason. But the way he's playing now, to see John Elway thrust his arms in the air on the sideline after that big win on Sunday makes me think that at least – you know, Fox and L.A., they know that they're football men. They know at the end of the day it's about winning games. And, and, and more often than not, as a starter, uh, Tim Tebow is a winner in the National Football League. Yeah. The Sportscasters are here with Damon Hack of Sports Illustrated, sportsillustrated.com. Uh, let's look ahead to next week. The Broncos are going to have to travel now to New England and play the Patriots. Basically, the way you think you would try to attack the Patriots is through the air. Does... Can Tim Tebow do enough to score enough points for the Broncos to be able to keep pace with Tom Brady and the Patriots? Maybe for a little while, Stephen, but I think it's you know this is no 
shot really on Tim Tebow. I think anybody who plays the Patriots is going to have a lot, uh, a lot of trouble trying to keep up you know, in a shootout with Tom Brady. It's just going to be a big ask. Uh, the Broncos led 17-7 when they met earlier in the season, had a brief lead, a two-score lead. They weren't able to hold it in that second half. And I just think that the Broncos coming off such an emotional win against the Pittsburgh Steelers, it's going to be very, very difficult to now get on a plane and beat a well-rested, hungry New England Patriots team playing uh, at home at the Gillette Stadium. But I, I tell you what, Tim Tebow was asked to pull the trigger. That's what John Elway's quote was to the Denver Post earlier in the week before that wild card game. Pull the trigger, you know. I think they think maybe the offense got a little bit conservative toward the end of the year. They weren't letting Tebow. They weren't letting Tebow kind of air it out. And sure, it's a little bit risky when when you air it out. But you you know, with, with great risk comes great reward. And I think we saw that uh, in the overtime and the touchdown pass to Eddie Royal as well. You have to kind of take some chances, especially if you're going to play a high-powered offense like the New England Patriots. Before we looked ahead, I, I forgot. I wanted to ask you, what was your impressions of Von Miller? Von Miller, what a great player. You know, I was able to talk to him on Friday, a couple days before the game, and was really impressed with him. Just He didn't strike me as a rookie, first of all. He's very mature in how he handled himself in the locker room. He looked like he'd you know, been a, a member of, of an NFL team for about 10 years. Just the look on his face, the calm, uh, very self-assured player, and, and physically, just a, he doesn't play like a rookie. And you look at that defense and think about him and some of the guys, Elvis Dumerville, the guys that will be there for a long time representing that football team. But I think Von Miller was the unquestioned of rookie of the year, and I think we're going to see a lot more great things from him, uh, as not only just as the years go on, but as the weeks go on, if, if, uh, if the Broncos can somehow uh, overcome New England this weekend. Where are you headed this weekend? This weekend I head to Green Bay. I've got the Giants at Green Bay. Uh, I'll get to see Aaron Rodgers again. I saw him earlier in the year when they took out the Oakland Raiders. I'm looking forward to seeing how the, the, the Packers react to being a number one seed. Obviously, last year won the Super Bowl as a sixth seed, won three road games, and, and uh, won the Super Bowl. Now they've got the target on their back, so they're going to be facing a team much like they were last year in, in the New, New York Giants that are playing so well right now. They're peaking right now. Are the New York Giants playing great defensively? really making a quarterback sweat as they did Matt Ryan uh, this past weekend. So what a great matchup. Uh, a quarterback at the height of his powers in Aaron Rodgers and a defensive line at the height of its powers in the New York Giants. Do you think that the Giants are in a good position in the sense that basically they're just going to take the game plan that they used to beat the Patriots in the Super Bowl <laughs> a few years ago and try to attack the Packers the same way? I tell you what, there's been a lot of us that have been comparing this team to the 07 Giants, and it makes sense why. I mean, this is a very versatile defensive line that you have Justin Tuck and OCU Manure that are two defensive ends that will flip-flop from left to right, and you sometimes they'll line up on the inside, and you bring in a Chris Canty, and you move Matthias Kiwanuka from down lineman to linebacker, but line them up on the, on the line sometimes. There's just so many things that they can do. The Giants have always been about defense. You know, going back to Carl Banks and Lawrence Taylor and Harry Carson, uh, this is what this town loves about the Giants. They love a defensive team, a smash-mouth team, 
Uh, and I tell you what, the thing that impressed me most about the Giants right now might be uh, not with Eli Manning, but the running game and seeing Brandon Jacobs, who was kind of uh, whining during the year about his lack of touches and maybe not being a fan favorite in New York, really came to play against the Falcons. And if he's going to run the way he did uh, against Atlanta, against Green Bay, uh, you know what? They can kind of extend some some plays and maybe milk some clock and keep Aaron Rodgers on the sideline. It seems like the NFC is similar to the way the NFC was in 09, where you have these two teams that everyone is hoping can make it to the NFC Championship game so we can see the matchup. And that's, in my mind, I'm thinking the Saints versus the Packers. And I wonder, do you think that the Saints are... A lot of people are saying they're the best team in the league right now. They're playing the best. They've won nine straight games, haven't lost since the disastrous loss to the Rams in October. Do you think the Saints uh, are the team that has a chance to beat the um, the Vike or the uh, Packers, or do you think the Saints really need to be um, Giants fans this week and hope that they can get a chance to host that NFC Championship game if they can get past the 49ers? I really think the Saints are, are a little bit of a different team outside as opposed to in the Dome, and that's no shame. It's no offense, but they remind me a little bit of the St. Louis Rams with Kurt Warner, um, just the way they played uh, on that turf, the greatest show on turf with Marshall Falk and Torrey Holt and Isaac Bruce. And I think that, you know, we're going to see a lot about the, the Saints and learn a lot about them when they have to go and play the San Francisco 49ers outside. You know, the weather there can be, you know, windy and possibly rainy. There won't be any snow, obviously, but it can be a tough field, very muddy, kind of slows down. Uh, a team like the Saints that has so many high-powered, fast-fleeted, you know, uh, uh, players of, that are fleet of foot. So I still think that the best team in the league is, is the Green Bay Packers. And I think that if the Green Bay Packers and New Orleans Saints met on a neutral field that was indoors, I might give the nod to the Saints. But if it's the Saints-Packers game at Lambeau Field, um, my, my tendency is to lean toward Green Bay, um, not by much, maybe by a field goal or, or a touchdown. But uh, I, I think it's 1A and 1B. It's not a very large margin that I think Green Bay is better than, than the, the, the New Orleans Saints, but I, I do give them a slight edge, especially if it's an outdoor situation. So you expect the Packers to come out of the NFC. Do you have a feel for who you think may come out of the AFC? Well, I tell you, Stephen, at the beginning of the year, and I'm, I'm kind of proud of this, I'll be even more proud if it continues to, to fall this way, but I, I have the Patriots and the Packers meeting in the Super Bowl, and right now, you know what, they got, they, got, they got two number one seeds out of it, you know, which means home field for both. Uh, i got to feel pretty good about that pick right now. And I, I'm going to just kind of riot it out. I'm going to pick, you know, the pass over the Broncos and, and the Packers over the Giants and kind of hope that uh, my little preseason the prognostication comes through. But I also feel like they're probably the two best teams in, in, in each conference. So uh, I'm kind of happy that it's turning out that way. But I also believe that they're the two best teams in their respective conferences. I have an interesting stat about the Patriots since you bring them up. Do you know how many teams they've beaten this year with a winning record? I think the answer is zero. That's right. So it'll, <laughs> it'll be interesting to see. I mean, you never know. If there's a team that is a big favorite that's uh, ripe for an upset, it could be them in, in Denver. You know, it's a good point, and they have not defended their home field during the playoffs very well, obviously losing to the Jets last year at home, losing to the Baltimore Ravens, Ravens yeah. a couple of years ago. So uh, you're absolutely right. This, this is a uh, this is a big test for the for the Patriots, only because they used to be known for being really bulletproof 
at, at home and, and in the postseason as well. It's hard to, to believe that this team has not won a, a playoff game in quite some time since losing to the uh, to the Giants in the Super Bowl. Uh, they really, really struggled to, under Bill Belichick. So I'm going to download the new edition of the magazine tonight at midnight. I can expect a column in there from you about what you've seen in Denver or... Yeah, I wrote a feature story, about a 1,500-word feature story on the game. I was able to uh, talk to Tebow a little bit after the game, uh, one-on-one in a, in a hallway. It's kind of where I uh, opened my story, kind of uh, in this little room next to the uh, locker room. The locker room was very loud, and this little room was very quiet, and uh, Tim Tebow was praying with some family members and friends, and that's, uh, that's where I opened my story. I, I don't believe that for a second. <laughs> <laughs> it's true and that's one of the uh the great things about working for a magazine is you can have some time to kind of linger uh instead of having to run back upstairs to, to file for your your newspaper deadline right. i had some time to to linger and, and uh kind of stay around the locker room and, and capture some scenes all right the sportscasters with the great damon hack who you can find on twitter at si underscore damon hack you want to get back to your boys i know so thank you very much for all the time and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much, Steven. Good talking to you. Thanks, Dame. Talk to you soon. Take care, man. All right, a special thanks to all our guests here, Season 2, Episode 2. I want to thank Chris Ballard and Michael Holly for making their debuts on the Sportscasters. And also want to thank Damon Hack for making his third appearance. You can't really... I mean, there's not many nicer people out there than Damon Hack. I mean... Maybe I, uh, maybe our boy... I mean, uh, we love Jenkins and we love <laughs> yeah. Wertheim and we talk about them, but we maybe don't give enough credit to Hack, who... No, he's great. He's a great guy. And, you know, it was a really hard booking a guest this week, a football guest. You know, I really wanted to get someone. And a lot of people were available next week, and we're going to talk next week to Kenny Albert, who's going to be broadcasting the Saints and 49ers game. We're also going to talk to Don Banks next week, who was on the show in the preseason and writes mostly for SI.com. Uh, but it was a tough week, but Damon Hack made some time with us, so we appreciate that. And really, who better? I mean, what was a bigger story than Tebow this week? Yeah, he, I know was he, probably, he was the right guy. Right. He was ultimately the right guy to have at the right time. All right, transitioning into pick four. Ugh. Don, yeah. you, I looked into it. This is your fifth straight one and three. Yeah, it's brutal. Uh, two, and, two and six to start the new season. Yeah, well, you got that bonus two points from the pick. Over under, so oh, you're four yeah, and yeah. six. You won. See, this is the weird thing about your picks. You always get one that is a great pick. And this week it was the Giants minus three over the Falcons. That game was twenty four two. You never felt like the Falcons had any chance there. Yeah, that's the line I should have tripled up instead of the. Uh, and you didn't go with your gut. You gave all these stats of why about the, the Saints? Saints were the right pick, and you picked the Lions. That didn't work out and for actually, you. Actually, that, that pick looked great for most of the game, and the Saints eventually just kind of stepped on your throat and said, that's enough. That's what they do to teams, though. Yeah, they just kept scoring, and the Lions couldn't. You had the Steelers minus nine over the Broncos. Ugh. Lost that outright. And we both missed the national championship game of the week. We both had LSU. Alabama won that game 21 to nothing, so we weren't anywhere near nope. that. 
I only did one game better than you. I had Houston minus three over Cincinnati. That felt real easy to me, and it was. I've been riding the Saints for a long time. Uh, Saints minus 11 over the Lions is another good pick. I thought that Colston, Sproles, and Graham could go over 350. They had 260. I didn't count Sproles' return yards. If I would have, it would have only got me to 310 anyway. So it's a little off on that. Graham was the guy who kind of didn't quite do his part. I think Graham only, he had seven catches, but he didn't have the yards that I kind of expected Graham to have. So we're both two and two. I'm six and, or we're both, I was two and two, you're one and three. I'm six and four, you're four and six. Before we get into our picks this week, I just want to mention one more. You know, let's do our picks first. Okay. All right, go ahead. All right, I just want to start off by saying I thought this week the pick, the lines were especially tough, so. Uh, maybe I thought they were easy in the past, and I've done lousy. Now that I think they're tough, maybe I'll do well. Game of the week this week. Your pick. You picked pick. this one. Yeah, it's the Giants at the Packers. Uh, I picked this because the Packers are the team everyone's picking to win the Super Bowl, if not the Saints. And the Giants are a team that look like they can just beat anybody right now. Uh, they're the team that nobody they're wants scary. to play. Yeah. That said, the Packers are a big favorite. They're a nine-point favorite. Sunday, 430 on Fox. I don't love the line, but I'm still going to take the Packers. They really haven't played a meaningful game in a while, and that kind of makes me nervous. And the Giants have kind of been playing in playoff mode for practically the past, I don't know, month or so. So that does make me a little nervous about this. And like I said, the Giants can beat anybody. But I think I've watched games in the past this season with the Packers, and it looks like the only thing that stops the Packers is themselves. Like they get up by enough and they just kind of get complacent. And they will, I don't see them doing that in a playoff game. So hopefully that holds up and they put a two-touchdown or three-touchdown win on them. Like the game of the week last week, this is a game we've seen already. Right. We've seen the Giants play the Packers in Lambeau once already this season. And the Giants gave them a game. And I think that's what we're going to see again this week. I think the Giants are going to give them a game, but I think the Packers are going to do enough to win. Based on that logic, I have to take the nine points and the Giants. Right. Because if the Packers win by more than nine, I don't know how much of a game they gave them. So I'm going to take the Giants, I'm going to take the nine points, and assume that the Packers are going to win. My host choice this week is the Texans at the Ravens. This is going to be a tough game. I imagine it's going to be a low-scoring game, which is why I'm going to take the Texans plus the nine points. Uh, I don't expect the Texans to win, and actually in our preseason blog – I predicted the Ravens to meet the Packers in the playoffs, which is different than the one I picked when I was kind of pressed on the air for whatever reason. Which was Falcons and someone. Yeah, that didn't work out. So I'm going to stick with the one I wrote in the blog. Uh, I don't expect the Texans to put up many points, but their defense, I think, is ranked like two and three in pass and run defense. And the Ravens aren't exactly a world-beating offense. So give me the Texans plus the nine in a game that I imagine the Ravens win by five or six when i was watching the texans game on saturday i thought of you because last week during three things you had mentioned what a great rookie class we've had this year and it was a texans rookie who made the great play on the interception jj watt it's also a first round yeah. pick this year he made the extremely athletic play as a defensive lineman to pick that dayton uh dalton pass off and, and return it for a touchdown so i thought of you there uh, my host choice, I'm going to do what I've done for weeks now. I'm just going to stick with the Saints. Why not? I only have to give up four points this week. 49ers are a scary opponent because their defense is so good, and maybe this is the team that can finally stop the Saints. 
And I'm, well, I, I, I think it could happen. I mean, I thought that there was a chance that the Lions might be able to beat the Saints last week too. But there's no reason not to stick with the Saints if you're me. I've been picking them week after week after week, and they've <laughs> yep. won week after week after week. So I'm just going to stick with it. And I'm going to say the Saints will cover four points on the road, and we'll go to Green Bay for the game of the year. Worldwide leader pick this week. I'm going to take the Broncos at the Patriots. Uh, that's a Saturday night game, 8 o'clock on CBS. I gave Damon Hack one reason to maybe not take the Patriots here, and the Patriots are massive 14-point home favorites in a playoff game they haven't been good at home in the playoffs they haven't beaten a winning team this year they have beaten the broncos and i don't remember the exact score but it was they, by they, more than 14 they beat them pretty good I, i'm gonna have to take the patriots minus the points again there's a few things telling me not to but i think when it comes down to it i, I think this is where the tebow story kind of ends for this season and uh i think brady puts up huge numbers on him. And I wouldn't be surprised if someone like Chad Ochocinco gets involved. And uh, It's going to be tough. The Broncos' D is good. I think Brady's better. I'm with you here. My worldwide leader is also Patriots minus 14 over the Broncos. Look at the way that you attack the Patriots, ideally, is to throw on them. Yeah. The Broncos, they opened up a bit. They had 316 yards passing. There's also a point pretty late in the game where Tebow only had five completions. I think that the Broncos or the Patriots are going to watch the film and realize that if you keep some safeties back there and you keep the Patriot the Broncos offense underneath, that Tebow isn't accurate enough to consistently beat you on those throws. So I think that the Broncos don't match up well against the Patriots. I think that, like you said, Tom Brady is better than the Broncos' defense, and I think that this one might be the most lopsided game of the weekend. My bold prediction this week, I'm going to go with the Saints here. They're a four-point favorite. I'm going to take the Saints minus 10. It's a line to me that seems too small. Uh, Again, you gave some reasons why it's not. The 49ers' defense is good. I saw an article on ESPN today about how the the Saints are going to have to run to beat the 49ers, which I totally disagree with. Uh, nobody runs on the 49ers. The best running teams don't run on the 49ers. So and the, the 49ers Saints, are fifth worst team against the pass. The, Why would we yeah, run? Yeah, the Saints aren't going to try to change their stripes in the playoffs. And I mean, and by the way, they ran great the other night against Sue. Right. I mean, I can make a prediction maybe that no Saints running back rushes for more than like 40 yards here, but uh, I still expect them to put up a ton of yards. I guys like Pierre Thomas. If he's he's going to be involved more in the screen game, he was stuff great anyway. the other night too. Uh, yeah, he's he might be my favorite Saint. I don't know why I've always liked him. Uh, that said, give me the Saints minus ten. I just don't think the 49ers and Alex Smith can keep up. It's been a really nice story this year. Harbaugh's probably the coach of the year, but I think this is where it also ends for them. And as a side note to that, uh, ESPN has what they call their inline. It's uh, a little bit more in depth stats for their insiders. Uh, they do the AccuScore. Simulations. Simulations. And their inlines would suggest that every spread this week was too high. So they would basically suggest that you take the underdog in every single game this week. Like they had the Saints as like a one and a half point favorite over the Niners, which is interesting because I took three of the favorites. So we'll see if uh, I can do better than the supercomputers this week. All right. Last week, I was so close to making my bold prediction that all four home teams would win. And I kid you not. That happened. 
Uh, instead, I went with a prop. I'm going to go with another prop this week. Drew Brees set an NFL record on Saturday by being the first quarterback to throw for over 400 yards in consecutive playoff games. Let's make it a third. I'm going to say that Brees is going to go over 400 yards passing against the so-called great 49ers defense. That would be bold. All right. Again, thank you to Chris Ballard, Damon Hack, and Michael Holly. Don't forget you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash the sportscasters. You can find us on twitter.com slash sports underscore casters or simply at sports underscore casters. You can find us on Gmail where you can email us, the sportscasters at gmail.com. Our blog is the sportscasters.blogspot.com. And our website where you can find all this information is www.sports-casters.com. Don't forget that we are going to, as of January 20th, have our own page on ProPlayerInsiders.com. I gave them a bunch of information this week of stuff that will be on that page. So I'm excited to see how that looks. In the meantime, give ProPlayerInsiders.com a look. And we will be back next week with Kenny Albert, Don Banks, and sure, someone else good. Don, you can cue the hip. All right.